My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge of the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Our first issue is available for pre-order now and features stories from around the world on the future of design, the realities of humanity, and adventures to truly wild places. Listeners of this podcast can get a 15% discount if they use the code PODCAST at checkout. Today, I am joined by Eric Hyman. Eric is a principal and co-founder of the award-winning, oft-exhibited design studio, Volume Inc. Volume creates place-based identities, branded environments, exhibit programs, and other spatial activations, but is also happy to design whatever is needed for creative, mission-driven entities out in the world. He also teaches at the California College of Arts, the CCA, where he currently manages TBD, a student-staff design studio creating work to help local Bay Area nonprofits and civic institutions. Eric also writes about design every so often, has curated one film festival, occasionally podcasts about classic literature, and is an AIGA fellow for his contribution to raising the standards of excellence and practice and conduct within the Bay Area design community. He's been collecting vinyl records since he was a teenager in the 1980s, but has never bought one for the sleeve art alone. And I can say that this conversation with Eric has been one of my favorite to date, and it spans many different ideas and tangents and fantastic conversations in everything from the world of design to the world at large. There's a few moments where we get into the weeds. There's also a few moments where the audio does have some issues, so I just ask you all to bear with us through those. Without further ado, here's the conversation between myself and my new friend, Eric. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Eric, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, always. And uh, I start every podcast with the same question, which is, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> the first thing I think about, um, uh, how do I get upright as a 52-year-old? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, I. what's interesting about that question is that um, in some ways the way I sort of prep in the morning is to just get up and um, you know read something and usually it's it's analog and I think the reason I do that is because I um, it helps get my brain sort of moving but it also sort of instantly takes me out of the self a little bit yeah um, I think I've always sort of used reading since I was a, a small child to sort of center me a little bit. And certainly the purpose of that centering has changed as I've gotten older, but um, I really enjoyed sort of getting up in the morning and just kind of like, Oh, I'm going to sit down and, you know, make some, make something to drink or, <laughs> um, you know, take, take a shower and then get out. And, and, um, but I, I think that, I, I I like that because I I am um, it just sort of gets me like I said gets the mind moving 
and also gets me away from the self. And I think that's kind of important because it's really easy, especially in post COVID, I think to, I think we all turned a little bit inward during that period. And um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think part of my motivation is, is pushing my work and myself out beyond this sort of um, persona we create. Yeah. Persona. And I, and I look to my, you know, my wife is just so good at sort of, you know, putting herself not last, but just sort of always thinking about other people, you know, and, and it's very much part of her life. And I, I sort of aspire to her sort of goodness. And I think that I love that part of, part of reading is just sort of, Oh, there's other things going on in the world besides your shit. You know? <laughs> so reading then in this case, is it, is it sounds like it's mostly news or is it a, you pick up a, a book or what, what do you, I think it's sort of whatever, you know, sometimes maybe it's New Yorker. Sometimes it's the latest book I'm reading. I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction. Um, I tend to try to stay away from my phone um, in the morning too, because I think it, it, it instantly becomes this sort of window into everything that's going on. I always call it like an Aleph. If you know the, the Borges story, yeah. the Aleph, it's like, you know, you see everything all at once and it can be overwhelming. And so I, I tend to do it very analog. Um, and then, you know, once the morning migrates past sort of making into making breakfast and stuff, then it's like, okay, I'll just find a podcast that I can listen to that I can put on or, and let that. And again, it's, I think it's the same thing. It's sort of listening to things that kind of get you out of your, your own stress and your own self and kind of begin to trigger things and neurons in your brain that, that, go somewhere else are there any books lately that you've read particularly that really kind of blew you away oh man there's so many um <laughs> you know i just i just finished i'm a big fan of this author her name is rebecca solnit um i would she's written these books that are really just hard to to describe they're they're often history they're often these meditations they're hmm. they're um they're probing kind of asking a lot of questions, but there's just one called um, Orwell's roses. And basically the premise of the book is that she read this story about George Orwell, the writer of 1984 and animal mm -hmm. farm and found out that he um, had a small sort of uh, rural house in England where he tended to um, a rose garden. And hmm. she found that juxtaposition very odd because Orwell has always been this figure that we see as this kind of politically motivated very driven external yeah. kind of for the people and roses are considered these i would say in probably in, as a plant these very kind of frivolous plants that, that really just speak to beauty and form right and so yeah. she was trying to reconcile that um that juxtaposition that how could somebody so driven like he was say. yeah and, and the book cracked open a lot of really interesting things about like oh this is maybe the way i think of things too and i and we might even end up talking about some of those things too and so that book really um really was great and she's written a lot of other great ones like the other ones are um paradise built in hell which i i might even talk about a little bit today and um river of shadows which is this history of edward moybridge who did those those, those photos that captured you know animals in motion and talking about how that sort of speaks to the way the, the, our whole perception of time changed when Moybridge 
created those photos. Anyway, she's she's a, she's a great writer. She's a local hero too, which is great here in San Francisco. And um, and then you know I always kind of have fiction books going on too. And so I'm part of this this funny book club book podcast. And right now we're we're trying to get through Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which has <laughs> been fascinating, um, difficult but but fascinating. And I, I don't think I would have done it otherwise. And then I just reread. Why was John it put to pause you? Why, why was it? Why is it difficult oh, yeah. for to anyone unsuspecting? And just before you get on that, uh, as a reminder to everyone listening, I link all as Eric can see me typing furiously on my phone as he's talking. I, everything that you mentioned is, <laughs> is linked below in the show notes. So basically all the books you mentioned, all the shows or people, people are looking for them. They're all linked right below. Just click more info and you'll see it there. Sorry for interrupting you. Why is it difficult? That's okay. Um, well, I, you know, this is sort of, I think, considered the, the Mount Everest of, you know, 20th century literature. Um, hmm. And, you know, essentially, if you were to write down the plot, it's like, you know, French or royalty slash bourgeoisie guy goes to a bunch of parties and observes people and every once in a while walks the streets in between them. And <laughs> um, and so it just requires a sort of an attention. um that I think is rare these days. I was just listening to the Ezra Klein podcast this morning, coincidentally enough, and he had somebody on that was talking about how, you know, the the, the thing in our brain that helps us read is not, it, it wasn't, you know, in the brain from the beginning. It was like this plastic sort of connection that we made over time once language came into the fore and how it's plastic. So it can be easily, you know, reformed and reformatted and changed and, and she talks about how, you know, the way we're reading right now with all the information is changing the way our brain processes information. And we have to begin to separate, you know, when we read emails and when we read, you know, news headlines and news online and we read, you know, fiction that demands a little bit more of us. And I think this book is is just fully sensory. It, you know, it can it, nothing can happen for 50 pages except him sort of describing his environment or or riffing on some sort of idea around love and and desire and it requires a lot of work and it's in one of those fascinating books where in the moment i don't know if i'm enjoying it but as soon as i finish reading a part of it yeah i'm like wow this is really great (laughs) And, and i don't know how many things i read that have that sort of paradox and and um you know, but I have found that I really have to carve out time to read it. I can't read it at the end of the day. I can't read it sort of while I'm on my lunch break and, you know, trying to sort of just take a, a break before I really have to like make an hour in the morning on the weekends or whatever yeah. and focus in on it. And, and, you know, to me, reading is still the, the, the single task, my favorite, you know, single but task. There's a beauty sort of activity. To that. So. That, that that need to to focus and concentrate because there are definitely books that I can pick up and read ten minutes of a, a ten parts a day you know in between random tasks but right. then there are books like that that I think they almost they almost I, I think you, I want to get your take on this but I've always believed that most of the books that society generally believes are like on the pedestals or in the pantheon are books that really require your full attention to fully understand yeah and and. I think it's also okay when you're reading this book that you do, your mind does drift. I think in some ways that's the whole 
famous Proust Madeline idea is that you, you know, you, you bite into the cookie and your mind goes elsewhere. I think you read this book and your mind goes elsewhere because it triggers these things. And there's just something very visceral and sensual about it that is hard to describe unless you really engage with it. Um, you yeah. know, on your own. And I, I, I'm beginning to understand now why it's so important, even if in the moment I, it's a struggle very often. So there's a, there's a book by an author named Young Me Moon. And uh, they say, at the end of the day, what matters less is what's on, is not what's on the page, but what's in your head as you read it. And I, I love that and agree with that. And I, cause I used to, as a kid, someone with like ADHD always put in the corner for not paying attention. And like the only thing in the corner of the classroom I was is books. And I didn't like reading cause my, I couldn't concentrate on the book. I'd always think about other things. But as I got older, I began to realize that the thoughts I'm having while I'm also reading are probably more important than the book itself. Um, and ironically, I discovered that quote because, you know, you and I talked off camera about uh, my work with Brian Collins and he would, on, we, we would go to the Strand about once a week, which used to be two blocks. Uh, people don't know the Strand is this beautiful, massive bookstore in New York City. Um, so awesome a few blocks, place. awesome place. Few blocks from his office, and he would just run around and look at books that looked interesting, and then give them to me and be like, "I've heard about this, or I used to read this. Can you go through and read it and try <laughs> to find like interesting tidbits that wow. that we can use?" Um, and it's and every single one was like on nail on the head you know um and to me it was like my worst nightmare but i ended up liking it because at first because because i didn't realize this but i think it's it's true it's this this idea of what you're thinking about and i think that's probably why you like doing in the morning right because you're interested to see like where your mind does go when kind of placing itself among the world i mean i think it's also important to mention too that reading to me is not just this intellectual pursuit too i think what the proust books and another author that I was going to talk about this guy, Hanif Abdurraqib, who's a, who's a critic and a poet. Um, it's sort of the poetry that they bring to either the language itself that they use or their view of the world. And, I, and I, you know, Hanif Abdurraqib is ostensibly a, he writes poetry, but he also has done his books, which I would call cultural criticism. But there is such a poetic, personal layer to it both in the language itself, but in the way he weaves these stories around these points he's trying to make about culture that is really, um, it enriches you in this very emotional, um, I would call it physical, but emotional way that um, I think is also the magic of, of literature and any sort of art, right? I think that um, I in my older age, I think I've always done this, but I think as I've gotten older, I begin to, I approach my work, I approach culture from a much more intuitive, emotional standpoint, as opposed to a more intellectual, rational one. Um, and so I am drawn to these things that can get what they want to do across in these much more poetic, emotional ways as opposed to rigorous intellectual rational it's not to diminish that it's not, not that i don't do it at all but um you know i i struggle sometimes with my work and 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 how that design tends to be this thing that wants to engineer control things and i often think that we need to let a little of that control and engineering go and 
bring in a little bit more of this serendipity, celebrate the cracks in the surface, um, the cracks in the systems that we create. Yeah. It, because, you know, that's what makes us human. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the messiness of humanity, I think, is really important. And I think the combination of technology and the way design is so focused on systems, I think also does a really good job sometimes of squeezing the life out of things. And yeah. it's how do we keep that in there? Um, I think it's a huge part of a huge struggle, I would say, in my own work as a designer, for sure. Yeah. Mess is more to, to, to bring it back to Brian Collins, something he always say to me. Um, but so I'm curious to know how you discover a lot of these books or individuals. Are they friends or things you read, or are you just very curious and go to the bookstore and pick up something that looks interesting? Um, you know, I definitely read things like, you know, all the New York publications that talk about books, you know, Mm -hmm. literary hub, but I also, you know, there's a bookstore like four blocks up the street from where I live and I've gotten really friendly with the clerks there and they will recommend things to me. And um, I mean, I have authors that I follow like Rebecca Solnit, but they'll recommend things to me and put me down paths that I, I, I probably wouldn't wouldn't get to otherwise. Um, but I, I think it's just part of my cultural diet is I, I like to know what's going on in sort of the literary world and what's new and um you know, it's, 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 it's been one of these things that's always probably since I, like I said, well, since I was a kid, that's always been part of my, you know, cultural diet. So, um, hmm. but yeah, I, I still like to go to bookstores and look for serendipity, serendipity. And then I have this, this funny crew I was telling you about before with the Proust thing, these, these guys that are at least 15 to 20 years younger than me, they're all sort of hardware engineers but they are all autodidacts who are really, really want to know about literature and and the guys that really lead this, 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 this club, I guess that I'm in are, are really into it. You know, that they're really schooling Hmm. themselves and and, challenging me. You know, I've been reading all the stuff that I probably wouldn't have read otherwise or known about otherwise, or just hadn't got to. Um, and so, uh, I, uh, I'm really, it's been fun too. It's just fun to be in this kind of stream of these, these guys that I would not have met otherwise. Yeah. Um, but but that's the beauty of life, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. You, you don't, you don't know what someone that comes into your life forever, potentially how brief will be able to teach you. Right. You just, you just never know. Um, yeah. And you have to keep yourself open to that. I think it's harder as you get older and I don't have kids. So that helps, I think a little bit, but um, it's easy to kind of, get and get set in your ways in terms of the people you see and the things that you do. And I think part of being in a city and part of, you know, doing what I do as a designer is that it forces you to really sort of swim in a lot of different streams. And, um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's key for me in life and in work. So with, with the no kids morning routine then, um, cause a lot of people <laughs> your age, you know, would have kids at all, yeah. also, all levels of ages. Um, so you, big reading, do you eat breakfast? Do you work out? Do you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a very particular breakfast that I make. It was part of some, some health issues around diet that I had some years ago. And, and so I always make that. And then, um, I usually bike to work if weather 
permitting and in San Francisco that's <laughs> fairly often. And so I, I tend to, um, use that as my exercise routine. Um, cause I, I am not really a fan of gyms or, yeah, understand. Um, or organized exercise for lack of a better description. So, yeah. um, so, um, and so that, I think that's also a good, between the healthy breakfast and then when riding. I'm curious what's in the breakfast. If, if you want to walk me through it, if you're going <laughs> yeah. to share. Yeah. No, it, it was, um, it's usually a, this green smoothie that I make that is basically like all green vegetables and a little bit of granny Smith apple. And then, mm. um, and then just a, a cup of blueberries. Um, and that's really it. Um, on weekends I'll, I'll treat myself to some eggs, Yeah, you know, but, um, but otherwise it had to be pretty lean. This was part of this diet that I had (laughs) to be on for a while to get rid of some of the stomach stuff that I had. And, um, and it just kind of stuck because it made me feel good. And, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, I, I think it, again, it's those rituals. I I have to make it myself and, Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that hard to make, but it's, 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 it's part of the process. Yeah. And I tend to be one of these people that kind of poo poos this very rigorous kind of schedule <laughs> kind of thing. But, yeah. um, but at the same time, it's like that, those are these kind of things that allow me to kind of flex yeah. and be more intuitive elsewhere. So I think, or spur the moment elsewhere. So I, I think that, you know, I, as much as I disagree with him on a personal level, something that I actually learned from Jeff Bezos was this idea that like, if you can automate the basic tasks in your life and save the creativity decision-making for the new things, it really helps. And it's amazing. Like, so I, I refuse like you, I refuse to have like a set wake up time or a set, like some people are like at eight ten we do this at eight fifteen we do that. And it's like, I, yeah. I will never do that. But I like this idea of having a, like you see you do, you have, you have an order of what you do in the morning. You have like a checklist, a mini manifesto of a checklist. You like, I must, Eric must do these things in order to be Eric. Today. Right. <laughs> I mean, I call it like a scaffolding, you know, it goes back to yeah. our systems kind of talk about design there too. It's can we create scaffolding that gives people some guidelines, but allows them to plug in or more for change it mm-hmm. to fit their needs a little bit more as opposed to one size fits all. And yeah. um, so. it's, it's interesting you say that because I've, I'm actually just wrapping up like almost a year and a half of pretty heavy travel and you know different time zones different places it's nearly impossible to like keep that schedule or keep that scaffolding as you call it in place and so yeah, it's, it's fascinating how t- how many how many times my days have just gone off the deep end but not and like i used to think that like oh my day is dead nothing's gonna work but it's amazing there's this like dead period where after a while i just get like hyper creative at the most random times and it's strange what has come into my head from this process but i've learned that like sometimes having days where you don't have a schedule and you ignore the scaffolding on purpose leads to other fruit that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And I think it's where travel is great. Like I was just in El Paso, Texas to see my family because my brother lives there now. And, and, you know, having five days free, not in my place, not working, not in my city, kind of just, Such you know, free. threw caution to the wind. Right. And I think that's the wonder of travel. I, you know, if, it, if I was one of these sort of people that I think it sounds like you did this where you're, you're kind of a nomad that's mm-hmm. trying to work as well as travel. I, I you know, that would be, I don't <laughs> it can be I, hell I, I think sometimes. I'm too, I think I'm too Gen X for that. Maybe is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, I, I've been asked at one point the next year to do a podcast all about like how I was able to, to do it. 
Um, cause I think it's, it's definitely not, it, it took a lot more discipline than I ever thought I had, but at the same point in time, I kind of embraced the lack of discipline. And I said, well, if I want these things, I have to work on them, but I really embraced the idea of like, I only worked on the things I genuinely wanted to work on at that point in time. And what I learned is that I very quickly removed the clients and the products I actually didn't care about, you know, which was useful, uh, yeah. 20, you know, analysis. But sometimes his clients you didn't care about were presenting most of the income of the company. So, which is, as you know. Well, that's, that's the, yeah, that's the, that's the always the issue. I think no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of design, art plus commerce sort of endeavor you're doing, you know. But I think you're right. I think we, you know, we took some, because COVID allowed this, we took some like work from a distance kind of vacations, me and my wife, where we just go up north for a week and work from there. And I have to say, you know, it was, I was as productive in a lot yeah. of ways. It was just kind of a slight tweak. And I think maybe that's it. It's just, again, it goes back to the idea of scaffolding. It's like you, there's a little bit of structure still there, Balance. but you bury the other stuff. And that's what opens you up to this Correct. creativity that you're speaking yeah. of. I couldn't so do hundred percent of either. Find that balance. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's why people say, you know, and before we dive into, uh, you know, you and your work now, um, kind of wrapping this up like this people always say like oh are you a remote or are you in person i'm like i think the answer is somewhere in between for me like i love the days where i'm at home can get the things that i need to get done that maybe are taking up space in my mind that aren't work related but also i can then go deep and blast music and you know walk around wearing pajamas all day and not really care but then the days where you're in person with your team especially in creative projects is i mean you know yeah. how this it is so yeah i don't know how some of these design companies are doing it fully remote i mean i know how they can do it i just i just i would feel it would start to get a lot a lot less rewarding you know i just think that we get so much done when we're sitting in the same room and Mm -hmm. put stuff on the wall it's like boom six hours just was compressed into one yeah Um, i i have a friend who teach their own but yeah runs a creative company and has been pretty successful but the only thing they found that works was morning and like beginning of day end of day check-in meetings with individuals and the whole team and that to me just sounds like a massive waste of time like i i understand if it works for you but like i would hate doing that yeah and it, it always felt i mean we did it we had to do it when we were fully remote i mean i was coming to the office alone a lot um mm. but yeah it did felt after a while it was like oh this is great to see everybody because we're going through this crazy thing but like six <laughs> months in it was like do we need to be still doing this i'm not really sure we do yeah. and so everybody is finding their footing in this respect and yeah i'm but i'm excited to see you know work get a little bit unmoored from these calcified you know ways of doing it i think that's worth exploring for sure but for me there's also this sort of social aspect that comes to being in a room together and having to interact with other people and then if you're a commuter you know i always saw the commute whether it was on my bike or um, on the bus or whatever as this sort of liminal zone to kind of transition between work and and home and when you don't have that it's it's disruptive and I think that was the one thing that I missed a little bit during the pandemic was that it felt things were just starting to bleed and, and I finally I had to say okay at 5 30 I'm gonna turn this off and I'm going to go into the other room and I'm going to put on the one of my 800 LPs and I'm going to listen to it the whole way through as a way to cleanse the work day. And, and so as long as you can find ways to do that, but it's, yeah. it's, it's harder. I think it if is. you're going to be doing fully remote 
So are you, so I, uh, of your LPs, do you just kind of go with your, your gut vibe when you want to pick one? Or sometimes there's a song stuck in your head all day and you're like, I'm definitely listening to that. Like, what is, do you have a, do you have a modus operandi for that? Um, well, like many designers, I reorganized my shelves according to color fine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as someone who was sort of an obsessive, like, um, ordering, you know, when I had baseball cards or comics when I was a kid and moving into mm-hmm. LPs, you know, it was always like alphabetical so I could find them. And, I did the color thing with my LPs and what's fun about that is that, you know, they're in just a completely random order. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, some of the new ones are already sort of down by whether a turntable is, but it's really fun. And so sometimes I'll just look, oh, oh, that'd be interesting to listen to. Or, you know, my wife will go, Hey, can you put something on? It's a little less abrasive. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> oh yeah. Let me think about that. And I'll scroll, you know, pick a color, hun. And, you know, and I also just, I mean, again, I, I sound like an old, old man talking about these analog formats but i found that as someone who maybe grew up with this idea that you like bought a record and and you paid 10 bucks for it back then and and it was didn't matter if it was bad or good you played it 20 times because you paid 10 bucks for it you wanted to make sure (laughs) that it was good or bad and so i found that that ritual of actually taking the physical thing and putting it on the turntable Mm -hmm. adds an added attention to what you're listening to because there's kind of a ritual slash object attached to it and um and you're just taking the time to put it on as opposed to put it on in the background because my stereo stuff is not in the room where i work and so um and it becomes you know this yeah and i i I think i love the fact that i can apple music and literally find anything that i ever wanted to listen to more or less yeah and there's a lot of holes in in a lot of those Mm -hmm. libraries but nonetheless as opposed to what it was before where it's like oh my god you have that record can i give you a cassette can you tape for me and bring it back (laughs) you know i'm glad that that part's over but yeah there is also something lost as well there's a magic uh in in records and i i was i mean don't don't forget you're talking to the you know gen uh millennial i'm not gen z i'm not god uh, the millennial that's making a magazine in 2022, but like, uh, right. I was, I was, <laughs> I was thankful enough that my mother growing up, um, so to this day had an insane LP collection like yourself. Um, you listen to it very often. And so that's why like on the bus in eighth grade, I was listening to Zeppelin and rush when my, you know, friends were listening to like usher and see my, see, I, I believe as a musician myself, as someone who used to play a lot of music, I, I believe there are now two camps of albums, right? They're the ones that are meant to be split up for the charts that are just meant to hit. And then there's literally like, I listen to some right. albums that are like this, where there's like dead songs on there. I'm like, this song will never be listened to anyone. It's not going to be a hit. It's right. not going to be anything. And then you have other so- albums that come out now that are like meant what they used to be. They were an event. They were a story. It was something you look forward to. And then as soon as it dropped, you listen to it straight through. And like, I think it's the most respectful you thing you can do. Whole, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also brings up issues of, and I think this is a big part of what I think about a lot of the designer, especially being in San Francisco, you know, tech app land, which is mm-hmm. where are these moments that we need to actually build friction in as opposed to trying to eliminate it. Right. Yeah. And um, this is an issue that I think about a lot when I, especially when I see students, like when, what is that line where we make everything so easy that people don't know how to, 
I don't struggle is not the right word, but sort of mm-hmm. work through something. Struggle you know, they're is to work right through word, something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, well so I, I I talked about this recently on a previous podcast. I mentioned it with Heather and uh, another uh, woman named Petra, um, who used to run sustainable packaging at Nike, and and so we were talking about the simple fact that like there's there's two different trends here, right? There's this idea that like because the solution has been presented to so many people in the younger generations, people, when, as soon as they hit resistance, they're not going to like, they're, they're going to stop trying. They're not going to find like that golden parachute or golden basket of gold behind that wall. And the second thing is that like, because of social media, because of the pandemic, people are much more open about talking about the fact that like, Hey, I'm not okay right now. So you have this like weird double entendre going on where people are interested in improving themselves but also not interested in putting in all the work to improve themselves. So I don't know if it's actually a, <laughs> a positive game. That is, that's very well said. I think um, that's a very great observation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that... I mean, one thing that maybe is also a product of upbringing and, and age is that um, there's this obsession with being happy that mm-hmm. I think is, has taken hold in the last, I don't know, 10 years. And, yeah. um, and I think the pandemic threw this really interesting curveball, and I, I think we all have PTSD from it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't think there's any shame in going like, this was hard and, and I want to feel better, but yeah. at the same time, I also think this goal for happiness, and this is something that comes up in that Rebecca Solnit book that mm-hmm. or- Orwell's roses a little bit is this idea of, I think it was she extrapolated this from Orwell that ha- he saw happiness, and by extension, she does as this sort of this um, almost anesthetizing narcotic thing, mm. and that really what we should be aiming for are these moments of joy because joy yes. is anarchic. Joy is when you let go of things, and that's when things crack open and you really feel things. And I, when she wrote that, I was like. Oh my God, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I've been trying to explain for so long. And for me, I am okay with going through these rough patches. Like I, for me, I'm more concerned about being engaged and feeling than I am, you know, making sure I'm quote unquote happy. And so I think about, I've had two friends die very young. I went through these horrible sort of periods of like dealing with like, Oh my God, they're gone forever. And it was horrible in the moment, but man, I am really glad I went through that viscerally. It taught yeah. me a lot mm-hmm. and it, and it made me, it really connected me to people in ways that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I think if I had been trying to be quote unquote happy, I don't know if I would have been open to the, the beautiful things yeah. that came out of something so horrible. Yeah. And, and I think about that a lot as well. And I'm a believer of someone who's, you know, uh, dealt with plenty of mental health, uh, episodes as many people have that like you can't have the highs without the lows and i think that's a that's exactly what you're just saying and i often think about this is a weird kind of correlation my brain made but i realized that you know when i look back at my life i remember the happy beautiful moments and then and then i remember these kind of more sad anarchical whatever word whatever word you want to use moments but the balance between them is the beauty i look at and it's kind of like the the average of them and for some reason i think about the fact that like Neil deGrasse Tyson once said that, you know, we think of the earth as this like bumpy, rolly, mountainous place. But if you shrunk it down to the size of a cue ball, it would still be smoother than the cue ball. Um, and I and I love that kind of idea of just like, you know, 
I, I, I don't ever be like, you know, Oh, today sucked. I was sad. It's like, I was sad today. You know, it's like, it is what it is. Right. You, know, you, you, people, people, I think the problem with social media, especially people want to be indexed this idea of like, Oh, I wasn't happy today. So it was terrible. Or, Oh, I didn't, you know, do walk 20 miles or spilled a new company or get on Forbes 30 under 30 or some, some BS like that, you know? Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, I I mean, I think and I like the way you talked about it, where it's like this there. You want a good mix of the anarchic, right? You don't want Mm -hmm. it to all be awesome. That's probably if it is, it's probably drug induced. And if it's all bad, (laughs) it's not going to work. Right. You're just going to be, you know, going to curl up in a ball and knock it up in the morning. And so I I think is that I think it's exactly what you said. It's sort of I know there's going to be some things that are going to be tough, but as long as there's some some counter to that yeah you know and this is where i think the 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 scaffolding comes in again you know i'm able to say this because i make enough money to live in this city i have a wonderful wife we have a place to live there are these there are these constants that allow me to sort of flux have flux elsewhere and i want to be very clear that there's a certain amount of privilege that affords that sure even if i'm you know, by San Francisco standards, barely <laughs> middle class, but, um, yeah, but nonetheless, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel very grateful that I have that cushion in which to experience those things and, 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 you know, like, and not have any sort of, you know, medical mental issues that might make it very difficult too. I, I, I don't want to diminish the people that sounds like yourself that have suffered from that and have had to work through that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think I forget who said it. It's probably Naval when he said, uh, you know, like a, a happy person or sorry, a healthy person wants a million things. A sick person wants one thing, you know? So I think that I always tell people, I, I, was, I had some friends in the past that were dealing with whether they were medical or mental or things and they were like distract themselves with work. And I always tell people that the same exact thing. I say, you know, spend the time fixing that thing because once you do everything else will become so much easier. Because you're constantly fighting it in every single aspect avenue of life versus just dealing with it. And probably the problem is most people don't want to deal with it or put the work. Yeah. And that's, and you know, when I had this, this physical health thing that was, that was really debilitating for a while, it was like, suddenly this, this thing was very single focused. It was like, if I fix this, Mm. it's all going to fall back into place again. And I think you're right that when there is that one thing that you have to sort of attend to then you know do it because it makes all the difference so well, there are very few things in life that can't be solved by just working towards it <laughs> yeah. like hard work hard work you know that's that's the one thing and that's one you factor of everyone i work with everyone i've worked with it's just like there are many people that just don't want to work hard and it could be because they're just not in the right field or not the right job they're not motivated whatever it is but like if there's something you want, especially in America, if you have any level of privilege, and if you're in America, you already do, in my mind, um, then if you want to get there, then get there. That's what I always tell people. Just put in the work. It's it's it's, it's waiting for you, you know? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I do pity that there is a lot of distraction more than there was, I think, when I was a, like, for instance, an architecture student. But I do... I think that's part of being a business owner now too, that I have to wear a lot of different hats, but there is something really rewarding about getting into the flow state. And I try to explain to my students, it's like, if you could just stick with it for like two mm-hmm. hours and just focus yeah. in, there's going to be these aha moments that you're going to just like relish for the rest of your life. And, um, but I, I, I think that it's, it's really hard right now for, for, for a lot of reasons. You know, I think there's just, there's a lot of macro stress that, you know, whether it's around climate change or, 
you know, things that I, mm -hmm. I think someone who came of age, like in the Berlin wall falling where we all thought, Oh, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff ever again. Um, <laughs> um, Sadly. I, I feel that I feel the pain and the stress that, that students have, you know, the sort of the lack of middle class and the income disparity and the struggles that people have to stay in these cities. And so I get why some well, some, and then there's like, Oh my God, I go on Google and there's so many good people and so many things that I could pick. And, you know, I, I, I feel that, I can I can feel how the students would feel overwhelmed by a lot of the, the either the choices or the the macro stress. But yeah. I just am like work, just do it, just to sit down and do stuff, and you'll forget about all that stuff if you can find that center. And and yeah. I'm saying this as someone who struggles with that a little bit myself now because of all the different hats I have to wear. Um, I think everyone struggles with that, but. So, yeah. so before we dive into kind of the work you do now and what you spend your time on, um, how would you describe the work that you do now to your eight-year-old self? Oh my god, my eight-year-old self would have been what in third or fourth grade. Um, yeah, down there. Uh, well, I would say you know, remember all that you know that drawing that you did, um, you know, on the back of your math assignments. Well, you're doing, you're still doing that a lot of that um but you're doing it in a space that um you know allows you know tells people stories um allows them to experience spaces in, in different ways um you know you're being creative to create these little hopefully moments of joy along yeah. with the moments of learning and moments of communication and um and it could be anything it could be like a memorial it could be a book it could be something digital, like, you know, yeah. the graphic design is this awesome hub that, you know, has taken us in so many different places. Aren't you excited? I'm sure. If you look at my eight year old self and go, or my eight year old would look at me now and go like, yeah, I am. But where did your hair go? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I love that. And there's actually in that process, before we kind of dive in, there's another question that came to mind. I don't know how it did, but are there any are there any sounds from your childhood that like really excite you? Like for example, um like I used to love drawing with colored pencils. And so like that sound of the 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 pencils dropping on like a desk, you know, like the hollow sound of the pencils hitting each other. Or like I was a big fan of Legos and I luckily have a box of Legos next to me. So like this this organic sound of like Legos inside a box making noise like that. Nothing excites me more to this day than like maybe a toaster popping with like pop tarts in it. than like that noise of Legos. I don't know why, but like, what about you? Like what, what is something that excites you? That's a great question. And my childhood's a lot further away than yours, but I, you know, that when you brought that Lego one, I was like, yeah, I just, I remember the sound of things that we sort of physically played with, whether it was the sound of the chains on our bike or the sound of the logo or the Legos or, um, mm -hmm. um, the sound of my parents playing music. My, my mother is an accomplished piano organist singer my amazing father my father is a is a is a jazz clarinetist and saxophonist i mean this is not professionally they're both sort of on the side but i sort of remember as a kid you know hearing a lot of music in the house too which um was really exciting and 
Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if, if I don't get to pick the, the Legos one, like you did, I would say that to me, it was that sort of, that sort of feeling of music and maybe it wasn't even music itself. It just always, I always felt that there were these, these kind of joyous expressions of something, whether it was mm-hmm. at my grandparents or my, my parents, um, you know, growing up, I just, I, I liked the, the din. I grew up in, well, half my family was, is, is Jewish. And, um, there was always kind of a din, you know, that I sort of loved. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the Gentile side of my family was like this too. And we would go to there, there was, there was, there was this din that was just really of people engaging with each other. And even if I didn't know what they were talking about, yeah. um, it seemed exciting. There's an energy that and, you can feel, and, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, that's the sort of stuff that, that I remember. And if I remember, I remember and appreciate, I think the most. Mm -hmm. I love that with, with kind of the conversation of family and you're allowed to pass in this question, if I'm entering into risque area, but is, is is, (laughs) you not having kids a a personal choice or just lifestyle choice or. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it was one of these things where I me and my wife got together. She's a little older than me. We got together when I was a late. We got married in our, I was in my early thirties. She was in her mid to late thirties. Um, you know, I think, I think I remember somebody, we were engaged and somebody said, Hey, you know, are you guys going to have kids? And I was like, I don't really know. And, and they're like, have you talked about it? And I was like, not really. And, uh, <laughs> and so I went to Megan and I said, Hey, how do you feel about kids? And she went, I don't really have any strong urge to have them. And I said, nor do I. And we're like, great. And we never really thought about it again. That's awesome. (laughs) And, and, you know, I think, I think people, especially when they get married, it just sort of seems like this is what we're supposed to do or they don't think about it. Yeah. Well, I just think it's just people are like, Oh, you cannot have kids. Well, I never thought about it, but I have to admit as I get older and I see my nieces and nephews get older and I see other people I know, obviously who have kids. I realize that like, I don't regret my decision, but I do realize that I am missing out on, or not missing out. I, there's an experience here that I won't experience myself that mm-hmm. seems like it's pretty profound. And again, I, I don't regret it because I think that my wife and I made a choice that we wanted to kind of live our lives a certain way and to do it. I think having kids would have made it very difficult. Totally. Um, and I'm really, grateful that I can be an, an uncle and and you know or an informal uncle to my friends kids but I, I see what they're I see what's happening as their kids get older and I realize wow that's an experience that you can't approximate in any way no and I'm not going to have that and so you know is, is it regretful no but I do I, I have a different view of it now than I did I think when we made the decision yeah but so. you know the 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 lack of something is sometimes even a more powerful lesson than the presence of something right um so i think that you are getting experience that parents aren't well getting, said right so that's how i view it right yeah, like I, I, I don't judge anyone for their personal choices but you know like what do they say like novices spot the similarities and experts spot the differences and i think it's that's that's the exact thing right like you people who have kids always want to be preach and be like, Hey, look, well, why aren't you having kids? Like, how dare you? Or like, you're not learning. It's like, we well, learn something different, you know? Well, I mean, I think another part of it too, and I, this is not a criticism of my parents. My parents did split up when I was nine. Um, Same, I'm sure six. that has some yeah. sort of 
some, some bearing on it. But what was really rich about that experience is that my parents centered other things in their lives when they, when it wasn't them and have to keeping this marriage together. And it was really exciting to watch them sort of, you know, do other things when they didn't have to worry about maybe putting the marriage, keeping a marriage yeah. together. And they took us along with them and, and um, it introduced us to a lot of things and, and made us really independent. Like this, I lived in the age where it's like, Oh, I'm nine years old. My mom has to go to work. Here's a key. When you get home from school, figure it out, go yeah. play. Same Stay home at six. And yeah, it's awesome. And I, I think it made us, it made us really independent and made us kind of question, you know, this sort of, traditional path that I think many of us are, you know, it's not a criticism. It's the go down, you know, you find a mate, you have children, you get married, whatever the the process is. And I'm really grateful to them for that. I think they really made us adventurous because, you know, they said, we're not going to be doing what everybody else is doing right now. And you're going to have to be a little bit independent. And we're, you know, my dad, I wouldn't even know my father if they hadn't got split up, if they hadn't split yeah. up, like suddenly he was in our, he was, he was in our world every weekend. And, and so my parents were both great that way in the sense that they introduced us to, to so many alternate ways of doing things and, mm-hmm. and not being afraid to just change things up and do something else. And I'm really grateful for them for, for doing that. But if maybe that was partially the reason we didn't have kids, you know, so be it. I would mm-hmm. still opt for the choice that we made. Yeah, I mean, so I, as a, as a product of divorced parents, mine were I was six when mine divorced. I have had this conversation a lot because some p- kids will be like, you know, there's always that one kid that'll make a comment being like, "Oh, I'm sorry, you didn't have a real childhood," and I, I'm always the first to first to say like, <laughs> it's it's look, there are certain marriages that are superpowers where they they bring out the best in both people, and there are divorces that do the exact same thing. And like, totally. I also came from the same kind of idea where like it was a superpower. Like my parents are still very good friends. They, they still raised us, you know, my sister and I together, yeah, mine too. but, but at the same point in time, it's like, I don't think they would be as powerful and as successful or happy as they are now if they didn't have that experience. And some, for some people, it's the opposite. Some people, the opposite happens. Right. But yeah. you, know, you gotta, you gotta find that superpower. Cause like some people find my, those people like you and your wife, right. seems like she's pr- brings out your superpowers. Right. Yeah, no, she definitely does. And, and, you know, I, I, my parents, I think too, they were in that, they're in that sort of line of right before the boomers mm. sort of right after the greatest generation. I think they saw a lot of change, you know, over their 20s <laughs> Probably the most. and 30s. That yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. And I think that for them to have, you know, weathered that in the way they did, they're, they're superheroes for that. I mean, I think that, you know, the social mores that changed during that period um, were, were seismic and um, totally. And with my mother, especially, I think for her to really assert the fact that it's like, wait a minute, you know, I should be able to do, you know, do these things that I want to do too, and not play the second fiddle role as a woman. I think you know, I really respect her for that strength. Yeah, totally. You know, that's, 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 that's a beautiful, I, I've never, I really thought about it that way too. It's just like sometimes in, in, in relationships and marriages, I can think of a few off the top of my head and my family and friends where like that those traditional marriage marital roles really do hold people back from being who they want to be. Cause sometimes like the roles should even be reversed for each person. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big learning thing that I think I learned too when I was in my twenties is that like, there's what you're supposed to do and there's what you need to do for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes those things are not the same, right? We have these sort of 
idealistic versions of how we're supposed to act. And I think that mm-hmm. when those come in conflict, you know, I, I think that can be a struggle. And, and I think that my parents probably struggled with that and, and yeah. bullied to them for having the strength to realize like, okay, we need to kind of zag where everybody else is zigging right now. I, I love that. And I think one thing I, that one of the biggest turning points for me, uh, this is more in college was that, there's a difference between what is the morally right thing to do and which is the societally observed right thing to do. And I think once I separated those two things, it became a lot more like open to the idea of, I don't know, graduating with a high part engineering degree and saying, fuck it and moving to New York city to make no money, trying to make it design world, you know, like, cause like that's, that was that like not objectively right by societal standards. Like, Oh, you're not pursuing a good job and you're not finding a like stable place. But you know, what's morally right, I think is universal, right? Like do no harm, you know, help thy neighbor, even from a non-religious perspective. Right. Right. But I would even add like, what's right for you. I mean, I have to tell my students cause you know, they get told really early on, like make it new. Make it new. And I always say, <laughs> there is don't no worry new about making it new. Yeah. Don't worry about making it new. Just make it yours. Mm-hmm. You know, try to divorce yourself from these things that you're supposed to do in design, you know, and, and yeah, there are some certain standards and, you know, guidelines of what makes certain things better mm-hmm. from a formal standpoint. But I always tell them, it's like, just worry about making it yours, mm-hmm. you know, that you, you contributed it to this and it feels right to you. Yeah. And then maybe it might be new. If you start with what's yours, that's, I think, how you're going to get there. Yeah, you're not um, going to get there from starting with what exists, you know? So. Yeah, it's like, oh, my God. And especially now where you have access to everything, it's like, oh, somebody did it. Oh, somebody did that. Oh, somebody did that. You're just like, you know, no, just tune that out for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, there's there's view, two different views. I'm the view that, like, ever, no thought is truly original. Someone's probably thought of it before. It's people who act on it and actually envelop it and turn it into something else. You know, it's just like exactly. transform. I, yeah. Those transfer. Do I think, it. do I think Supreme is a ripoff of Barbara Kruger? Sometimes. Yeah. But other times I'm like, this is some completely new and some different, but like, that's a, that's a controversial example. Try to think of something else in the meantime. But, uh, I think like NASA and SpaceX, right. It's like NASA was the creator of, you know, the, the incredible space program of the sixties and seventies and eighties. And they did more in that one period of time than pretty much any other organization has done ever in terms of like, taking nothing and turning to something incredible. And then, you know, it, it's interesting that nowadays the, the only few companies that have done similar things of taking these seemingly impossible tasks and making them seem mundane are, you know, private companies like SpaceX. Um, this idea of like, even 10 years ago, if I told you that there was going to be this, this, this company that's able to launch rockets into space on a weekly basis and then bring them back down and land them in this cool robotic fashion and then refuel them and send them right back up again. You'd be like, yeah, maybe 2070, you know, <laughs> regardless of not, if you're a fan of Elon, I mean, just irrespective of Elon, take him out of it. Like SpaceX <laughs> is, is quite a, a fascinating, you know, I, I case. I'm just, I'm just going to say no comment and understood. <laughs> uh, cool. I look, I, I don't, I don't need to really need to know or care what you feel about Elon, but um, that was more of a comment on SpaceX itself. Um, but, no, so... I, I have to be amazed by that stuff for sure. And especially someone who grew up in that, the wake of that space age stuff, totally. you know, it's, it's, it's cool for sure. So 52. So you were born after the moon landing, but still like right in the midst of like, you were a Skylab beginning of the space shuttle era. So you grew up space as a kid shuttle, with space shuttle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Totally. Cool. Yeah. 
there's actually a Lego space shuttle like four feet from my desk. Of course, of course there is, right? Um, <laughs> as I'm staring at it, looking, it's, I, I, and nervously will look at things and get ideas, and that's something I look at often. But um, so going back to your work now um, and what we talked about. So I'm really curious, and I ask everyone who kind of has founded and or run a creative agency or studio or what other moniker you'd like to kind of call your crew um but like what was that what was that journey like and and less about like the the nuts and bolts and more like the emotional decision of saying i'm gonna go and create something new and bring people in with me and (laughs) make something unique right yeah i mean i think when i was a before i started volume which was you know 20 plus years ago um you know, the options in terms of your work were not as expansive as they are now. Mm -hmm. Um, You could work for one of the 20 to 25 or 25 to 30 sort of small to mid-sized, you know, boutique design agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, I think maybe before they got bought up. Yeah. yeah. Well, or just stop. Are you talking about like the the pentagrams and the Ogilvy's and the... But you know, in San Francisco, there weren't a lot of these big firms like yeah. that. You know, there was like there was Landor and there mm-hmm. was some ad agencies. And you're right, there was a pentagram office here. But, um, you know, that's where I met Brian. Actually, Brian was the head of Footcomb Belding's design sort of area when yeah. when, <laughs> when I got out of school. Um, but, you know, it was really it was about these this core group of these more smallish studios that were doing really interesting work. And then. And maybe Wells Fargo and the Gap had some in-house design teams. And then this burgeoning thing called the internet was starting to come up, but I think it was primarily um, serviced by these smaller firms and then some other, you know, people who were in these companies that were quote unquote designers, but not really trained as such. And so, mm-hmm. you know, after working for a, a great firm for three years and then freelancing for other great ones, um, you know, I just was like, what are my options? Like, I don't really (laughs) want to go work for somebody anymore. Um, And um, I don't really want to work for any of these in-house things. And so, well, maybe I should start my own thing. I mean, it was like willful, just like ignorance slash what are my options? And I think usually is. Yeah. And at the time it was, it was the first dot-com crash. And, you know, I, I, I had always known my business partner, um, you know, in passing in the design scene, but, we just happened to like meet at a bar and he was like, Oh, I just finally left Mitchell's this place he was working. And I said, Oh yeah, I just, my last freelance job just dried up. And he looked at me and goes, Oh, you know, I'm thinking about just going out on my own. Do you want to talk a little bit about working together? And we had a few beers and felt like we were pretty well aligned <laughs> and, and then just met over a few, you know, breakfasts and lunches and just said, well, why don't we just take a year and sort of work sort of together and see how it goes. And it really just, steamrolled from there and um awesome and you know i don't i don't think i really understood that i did kind of have a vision until i was forced to kind of codify one um Mm. i had this woman that i worked for at this place called elixir design jennifer jerdy and she offered me a full-time job and i said look i don't want a full-time job right now i kind of like freelancing and then she finally Mm -hmm. said to me you know you should start your own thing. I looked at her and I'm like, no, I shouldn't. And she says, she goes, yeah, you should. And yeah. I went, yeah, whatever. And then like two years later, I was like, she's right. That's what I should have done. And so, yeah. um, 
And so to be honest, that's really how it came about. Mm -hmm. Um, And now 22 years into it, I I don't see how I could really (laughs) do anything else. I think that the freedom of having your own vision, however, power, whatever ebbs and flows we've had financially and creatively, I think is, 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 is addictive. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is really addictive, you know, and I, I, people ask me like, Oh, it's, I heard you had a couple hard months, like a few new clients. You had to figure out new ways to, to pay staff, things like that. I'm like, I honestly love those portions. Like you get super creative and you're like, okay, well there, are, you know, thousand ways to get a cat. Yeah, and, so. I always, and I always, my attitude is that there are no boring design jobs, only boring designers. And if there's one thing, and I, I, I wouldn't that. say that was one of our key sort of foundational tenets, but I do, I think what was, was really interesting about, being a designer here in this period during like the first internet and you know you, you had to find really interesting ways to to talk about these companies that were doing these things that were invisible to a degree you know yeah. software mm-hmm. it's sort of what tall and misunderstood did, right you know 10 years before we started which was how do you how do you visualize these abstract sort of concepts and things into into something that people can understand and and see in a visual way and and that was kind of fun, you know, that was sort of, it was fun to try to do that. And, um, and while we don't necessarily do a lot of, well, I guess we do, you know, still do some tech stuff, but, um, there was something wild west about it. That was, it was kind of fun yeah. sort of like, and these people that paved the ways for us that the, the first wave of these San Francisco designers that really kind of seized that and made it into something quanti- quantifiable and codified it, um, we're really, I think we're all, at least I'm very indebted to, because they kind of paved the way for this design being this thing that, that technology could sort of use to elevate their presence in the world. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how design used to be a luxury in technology and now it's a requirement. It's almost like how you are assessed before even people use your technology, right? Like websites used to be based on how easy you could use them. And now it's based on how beautiful it looks and with that how easy it is to use yeah i'm always like yay we've arrived and then i'm like yay we've arrived like (laughs) i think there's been a lot of yeah there's been a lot of you know it's double-edged sword i think too um but that's a maybe another discussion for later in the discussion (laughs) (laughs) do you have any favorite projects that really stand out that you often think back to maybe in your vinyl time where you uh just really like think back fondly of like really like in the trenches with the team uh you know like working on a particular project you mean during volumes tenure yeah. Mm-hmm. um yeah i mean i think that i mean i think what's been really magical about um volume is that i've always felt like we've had this really good alchemy and um where we all come together. And so, you know, whether it was the, the Academy of Sciences exhibits, which is one of our first big jobs, whether in that space, whether it was that Boy Scout sustainability treehouse, whether it was the ready-made book, whether it was mm-hmm. um, these jobs we did for Bloomberg. I mean, I think, you know, these YB, these projects we did for YBCA. I mean, I just feel like we've had a lot that I'm yeah. really excited about. And I, and, and it, to me, it's um, it's always been that sort of alchemy of all of us coming together and and this magic sort of 
coming out of it. And in hindsight, I, I, I look back at these projects and think like, how do we even get here? How do we even do this? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, these exhibits that we got to design about our work. I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of stuff that if, if we've had, you know, financial up and downs in, in, in the past, it, it, uh, I can't begrudge the work. And I remember, um, <laughs> about 10 years ago, 10 years into the volume, I just, I kind of had this just complete burnout between teaching and work. And so I took eight months off from everything. And at the beginning of it, I had in my head that I wonder if I'm going to move on. Hmm. And I, and I floated this to a colleague of mine who I had lunch with and he looked at me and he goes, are you out of your fucking mind? It's like, <laughs> do you know what you've built? Like, and how people like me look to that? It's like, before you make any rash decisions, you know, kind of think about, you know, what you've done. And in that moment, it was just like this poof, like, duh, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm just tired. I just need mm -hmm. a rest. Um, so 20 so years into know. volume and that being 10 years ago, are you coming close to one of those uh, times again, you think? Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm, it's not actually burned out. I think it's, it's burned out, but it's a different thing. I think mm -hmm. trying to run a studio and be a cheerleader for both a studio and your students over that COVID period took out a lot of energy. Um, and I am definitely tired, you know, and that's coupled with us kind of slowly. We've been making this kind of shift more towards these kind of architecture across with graphic design jobs, which we always mm -hmm. kind of did, but now we're really kind of doubling down on, um, you know, I think that I have a sabbatical from teaching next year that is very well timed because mm -hmm. I, I'm going to need that mental space to kind of get back to, to zero because I think a lot of my work in the last two years has really just been about morale because mm. I'm kind <laughs> yeah. of the extrovert in, in the crew. Um, and I'm definitely the extrovert in my, in my classrooms. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that took a lot out of me. And there was a moment, I think at the end of last year where I was like, can someone just lead me for five minutes? Just tell me what to do for 10 minutes. That's all I ask. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause you know, I think being a leader can, and having to run things can, can take a lot out of you. And so I'm looking forward to this time that I'm going to have free from awesome from, uh, from school. Even though I love it, don't get me wrong. And that's um, teaching at TCA. Sort of, yeah? yeah, exactly. Yeah. How did you get into that? Like what, what was, what was the journey of, of, because it seems like that's been a very impactful part of your own career, and you've been, you know, how was how did that come to be? Yeah, I mean, it, again, one of these pieces of advice that I give students a lot is is say yes to everything before you're thirty. I mean, don't say yes to like bad drugs and stuff that that's horrible, but otherwise, <laughs> yeah, you know, say say yes to everything. And I think, you know, I had some really awesome teachers in architecture school and design school that I really admired for their ability to do that. And I don't think I ever had in my head that that was what I wanted to do, but I did revere them in ways that I don't know. I think some people, especially in art school are very sort of anti-establishment. And But for me, I revered my instructors. And so literally three years after I got out of design school, the Dean, the chair of our program, because it was growing at a really fast clip, just called me and said, Hey, do you want to teach? I had this open class this fall and I said, well, do I need to do anything? And she's like, no, 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 no. Just take some <laughs> syllabi and, and you can start in the fall. And so that's really how it started. And then I applied for a, a bit more of a um, permanent slash, you know, part-time permanent position. And mm -hmm. I got that. And, and it was basically kind of a hedge just in case the volume thing didn't work out. And, 
Yeah. Um, and it turns out both things worked out. And, <laughs> and so, um, it's usually you know, how to happens. me, it's always been, it, to me, it, though, it was, it was fortunate because it's always been kind of a, a very yin yang relationship in the sense of, um, I can't go into a classroom and preach certain things if I don't practice them myself. Um, mm. and while I think there are plenty of design people who are fully academic or, or doing more research or, or, um, you know, not splitting it down the middle between this very professional and, and academic thing. It created this, this ability, it created the engine for both of them in the sense that like, well, okay, I'm going to do this really great work. And now I can bring that experience back into the classroom. And if I'm going to preach the stuff in the classroom, I got to make sure I'm doing this good work. And so it created this kind of engine that, that, um, that really sustains both. And I, and I would be curious to know if I, I don't think either one could exist without the other, even though, it's been a huge suck on my time. And I'm, I can tell you my business partner has gotten frustrated with me at times, understandably. So yeah, because I'm pulled in that in, in school a lot. Um, and so I'm very grateful for him for, for, you know, carrying a little bit of my weight over the years when I've had to focus in on school more. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's those two things in, in, in at the same time are really what makes my practice work and the teaching work. And both rewarding, I would argue too. So back, when was this? Like, put us put a date on it for us of like when you started. When I started, yeah. (laughs) I started in the twentieth century, nineteen ninety nine. I've been teaching longer than volumes been in existence. So, so in nineteen ninety nine, what was that one class you taught? Well, it was it was twofold. It was um, this this designer who uh, is still around. I think I think she's in New York now. Jennifer Sterling asked me to mm. substitute for her, <laughs> and so I started substituting for her in this experimental type class, which I should not have been part of. And some things went down where where she couldn't she couldn't even teach the class anymore. And so I quickly found somebody else to teach that. And then when the chair heard that I was subbing for her, she said, "Hey, I have this." it was called graphic design one. It's the first class in the design program that students take. And um, in hindsight, uh, it was, I think I was still cocky enough to think I could pull it off. And, (laughs) you know, and I think I did okay. I think that the students, if they suspected that I was not maybe quite adept at teaching it yet, were at least, um, engaged with the passion that I brought to it. I think because I was so young and at the time the program was still a lot of people who were second degree students like me when I was a student there, they were a little bit older, like 23, 25, 27, that the ability to relate to them was a little bit easier. And I think that that gave me a lot of me across the finish line too. Um, but uh, but it, it was so long ago. Oh, and you know, the other thing I, I kind of forgot too was that the other way I got into teaching was that my business partner needed someone to sub for him too. And I substituted, he was actually teaching before I was, he hasn't been teaching in a long time, but, um, and so slowly I started substituting for people and then the chair got wind of it. And then I got this class. And so, um, I taught that for a few semesters and then I got bumped up to this mid-level class that I taught for a very long time. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there's been a lot of changes in education in design and creative education over that arc too, in the sense that I came from an architecture schooling, which was very rigorous and very demanding. And 
I had to temper that. I've had to temper that a lot over that, that tendency to lean into that, like the way I did when I was a student in architecture, because it's one, it's different expectations, but two, I just think that way of teaching just isn't sustainable anymore on a lot of levels, um, both in terms of the physical and mental demands it makes of students. But, um, but also I just felt like it was maybe a little, um, sadistic to be Mm -hmm. fair you know um when i started in architecture school they brought in 110 people into the freshman class they sat us down the first day and said look to your left look to your right both those people will be gone and they were right (laughs) like there were 35 that's how i started engineering school same thing yeah it's like yeah and and i apologize quickly um for some reason my my airpods i was wearing just like blew up and went crazy and it stopped the recording so i think i you might have cut out for a few seconds but i'll make sure that it seems okay. kind of seamless in the recording but anyone listening i apologize if you got cut off um but no back to what you were saying so you went to carnegie mellon studied architecture and carnegie mellon is like well known for many many things including science and engineering and architecture um and, and drama and, and drama yes and, and so going <laughs> yeah. going sorry not, to get back on get you back on your train of thought you know this idea of what one in three making it through right yeah no i mean every semester we'd have to put our work up and some people would get a letter in the mail like over the christmas or summer break saying like we don't have room for you anymore and i it's it's a miracle that i got through that because i was way in the deep end compared to at least some of my classmates but um but you know, I had a really great group of friends, many of them more talented and smarter than me that helped me get through. And, um, we were very, there's a lot of court esprit, um, in that class. And, you know, I, I, I was not meant to be an architect for a variety of reasons, but I so appreciated the rigor and the intensity and the ambition of what they asked of you in that yeah. in that program. And, and that's why I really like, now that we've come back, I've come back around to working a lot more with architects. And the second they know I have a BR, they're like, oh, my God, really? Like, there's, yeah, this, let's talk there's about this badge <laughs> of honor if you have that degree. But um, I really appreciate the rigor and the, and the level of discourse that they bring to the table that, I'll be honest, I miss a little bit in the in the graphic design world. And you, you make it's a- different you know, but I miss it. Yeah. Sorry for, sorry for interrupting you. Um, but you make a good point. One of my, one of my old, my dad's architect. So I grew up with that kind of ideology. Oh, well, and you know, yeah, I know exactly you know what I'm talking that. about, but I, I had this, yeah. uh, I had this mentor who was a designer for a while and he's an architect as well. And he was always big in saying that like a lot of degrees teach you subject matter. Most of them are useless, but an architecture degree teaches you how to think. And uh, through rigor and, and embarrassment. And, and it's amazing. There's actually, um, I was in Boston. Uh, I, grew, I grew up there. Um, and I went on a date with this girl. This is years ago. Um, that was going to, um, uh, HSD, Harvard School of Design. Um, oh, yeah. and, uh, or the GSD, sorry, the graduate school of design. And, uh, she was saying like just how competitive it was and that, you know, they have that beautiful building where there's like 25 kids allowed per class. Everyone has their own desk. There's a hundred desks, 10 yeah. by 10, but they still have to lock up their work every single night because students will still sabotage other people's products in like 2020 at the GSD. 
um, which is crazy to me. So they actually hired full-time security guards to, like, sit in the locker room wow. with locked lockers with work in them. Yeah. Yeah, it was never like that. I, there was a real – I mean, I, I again, it sort of like goes to my age. It's like I wouldn't have even been able to get into Carnegie Mellon if I had to <laughs> apply today. I mean, it's just sort of – it was just yeah. a different time. But And maybe our class was unique. I, I know that our, the, the people used to run the department said we were a bit of a an outlier. But I just I never felt other anything other than like – we were trying to make each other better. It was competitive, but in a very sort of friendly, yeah. like lift everybody up sort of way. And, um, and, and yeah, there were some teachers there that really were tough and really <laughs> kind of, you know, put us through the ringer. And, but for me, that really worked. You know, I really, I, I really appreciated that they, yeah, so they pushed me further than I ever would have gone on my own. And maybe the delivery, like I always t- joke to my design students, I'm like, Look, I didn't get a good critique until like my third year of the architecture school. Yeah. You know, it's like, like wait, you like this? What? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like, and and, and again, I, I don't think that's necessarily the best way to teach, but I do appreciate, you know, the kind of the grit that it that it um, instilled in me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I granted again, there was, you know, I didn't have to work that much outside of school when I was there. Um, you know, I the students that I have are just different, you know, in terms of the demands on them. And so I think we as instructors have to, I think we have to, and I I would argue that design as a whole, as a, as a, you know, I was exploited as a, as a, as an architecture intern. And then as, you know, as a low level, exploited is the right word financially. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think if these tech companies are going to pay like students this much money and say, you can go from nine to five, I actually think it's a good thing. Partially, because yeah, I think usually there's a real culture five, of exploitation. Six to Twelve, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's a real culture of exploitation that I think design and art by extension architecture needs to reckon with. Um, yeah. Because I agree that it takes a lot of work to make something good, but I often ask myself at what cost, mm. and and that starts at the top. Yeah, it's it's and hazing. It's organized hazing at a at a career level, and unfortunately, it's because. The partners, the architecture firms that had to go through it 30 years ago want to make the new fresh meat go through the same thing to make them feel yeah. as part of the system. And it takes that one generation to say, we're going to stop hazing. No, you know? exactly. And I'm, mm. I kind of see it. I mean, I went through it and it, it was fine for me. I can make it work, but there's a lot of forces at play now that make me think it needs to change. And, yeah. and look, I'm struggling with this because I struggle to pay designers what I think they deserve mm-hmm. because of the low profit margins in a small studio like ours in San Francisco. And yeah. And I think if there was ever a reason for volume to maybe rethink its existence or at least the kind of existence it is, it would really be based on that. Yeah. That being able to pay people um, properly. Yeah, be able to want give people what they deserve. And then that's what I'm probably reckoning with most right now as a as the owner of a firm like this. It's like yeah. you know but luckily, I think so, for you and, and the future of just design in general is that companies, especially t- upcoming tech companies, are are realizing how important design is and realizing how much it costs, right? So unfortunately, that same world that created the $15,000 a year architecture interns um, also created the idea that like, oh, I'm a designer, but I'm going to do it at half the price. So the firm would do it to undercut them. And the problem is just lowers the... Like the best thing that design community can do as a whole is basically agree that like these are how much things cost, right? Like 
They're always yeah. more expensive, but please don't lowball and take all the all the work and create shit because a lot of design out there is shit. So yeah, um, I would even call. It I don't know how you totally correct that, but you're right. At yeah. least there is some there is more understanding and respect for what it takes to do it, but. Yeah, there's always somebody that seems like they're going to underbid. And, uh, you know, you, you get what you pay for is not so untrue, even in this case, too. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually but, took this page out of Brian's book, but um, I don't I refuse to bid for work or um, do like pitches where I'm actually putting out what work could look like because it's just it just never. Oh, yeah. Like, we don't yeah, do that just, either. <laughs> it's the people are like this. Is how much I don't mind giving you like our. Yeah want our you know request for qualifications we'll do that but um sure. but yeah but, we don't we yeah. don't do free pitches either and i tell people this yeah. even even tech companies you know like i have friends who run software companies who are like yeah it's this really awesome company it could be worth millions of dollars the contract with them but they want us to do a lot of work in the beginning to prove that we are worthy and i'm like that's just that's them doing the project for free so don't don't do it um my my favorite thing is uh, when when someone because I, I do we do a fair amount of rebrandings and and my favorite is when a company will say could you give us like a mood board and a few potential avenues you'd go down or like a few potential logos you'd want just so we can approve you I'm like no <laughs> you can pay us for that but you know no I mean it's interesting to hear your perspective too because I think that you do this long enough and you get in a certain arena it's it's easy to lose perspective of what's out there. And I, I, I try to also, I mean, I don't know if you do this, but I also try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's going to shell out a fair amount of money to do something that they maybe don't understand quite the value of yeah. at an acute level. And so I think it is our responsibility to explain to them, like, this is why it costs this much and this is why it's valuable. Um, totally. I think we can often sort of take that for granted. And I think where Brian is really talented and is, is, proving the value of what he and his company does and yes. what when but collectively we do he's, mm-hmm. he's a great evangelist for what we do he is uh very controversial for i i like i i i don't know for my thing is is working underneath him i when i worked for him when i first met him i thought he was like one of the coolest people in the world i still do uh and uh I was always surprised when I met people that didn't didn't like him or what Collins did. And I was like, I get it. But like, if you spend the time to understand why he is the way he is and what he does for design as a whole, you then become pretty thankful, right? Well, um, I mean, I understand how hard it is to do stuff really well and to do it for the clients that he does it yeah. for is an added layer that I think sometimes we don't necessarily like, I don't, we don't really work at least in the, on, on branding projects at the scale and the, and often of the clients that he does and to do what he does that well for people like that is a lot of work and it somebody has to do it if we want to keep that level up and you know hopefully i assume he's you know if he managed to pull a pentagram partner away to, to run something at his firm i'm sure he's you yeah. know hopefully rewarding them he can do but it. um <laughs> but i have just i just have a great admiration for the, the quality of work that he manages to pump out at such a consistent level i know what it takes you know and so the fact that people are willing to go to the the mat for him on his staff to make sure it's that good is mm-hmm. is 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 i'm i'm envious to be to be perfectly honest you know I, so yeah i've i thought about it for a long time and i think it's because of the system he's created through the way he presents and projects his work in his company 
basically he brings everyone with him. So if you're associated with him at his company, they know you've gone through the ringer. They know that you have what it takes. You know, you, you have the right stuff, you know, to, to use the, like an astronaut reference. But I think the one reason why you could tell the designers that made it in there that were just there for to stay there for a year and then they could go get any job they want afterwards and the ones that were there to make really good shit. Um, one of my closest friends at Collins, Ben Crick, who ran the SF office for a little bit. I'm sure you've met him um, from Australia. Um, he's taller, has a mustache, really nice guy. But he actually now is on the Apple design team, which is uh, something that him and I, you know, talked about jokingly over beers in 2017. He's like, yeah, I'd always, that's like, that's my dream goal. I'd always want to be there. And you, you, you and I know like how, just how hard and tight knit that team is. And just to be able to be a part of that system is awesome but yeah i, think, I mean i think the question oh go ahead sorry no it's okay please oh i was just gonna say that the question i think i have now and this this goes back to the teaching a little bit in the class that i'm teaching right now which is pairing students up with local nonprofits to give these nonprofits to you know free design work it's students amazing. get experience and yeah um you know i think we're i, I feel like the the last frontier here is that our designer is going to have the guts to add the ethical dimension to their work in terms of the, the work that they choose and how they choose to sort of interface with companies. Cause I, um, and it's not to say that, you know, Brian Collins or any of the other firms we're talking about are unethical, but I just feel like, you know, the world is burning right now and we, there's still this kind of business as usual in terms of the way yeah. we think about branding and think about mm -hmm. commerce and, um, and I think the challenge, it's more of a personal challenge for me is, and this, this requires systems to be rethought that are bigger than design to be fair, but yeah. you know, there's just a, there's a lot of hyperbole. I call it the LinkedIn hyperbole stuff that I, that, that, um, that I look at and go, look at the end of the day, this thing is not changing the world. And arguably you need to even be considering if you should be doing this work at all. Yeah. And, and, um, and I am the first person to admit that we grapple with this a lot too, but I think if design is really going to sort of move into its next phase, you know, cause I, I think we're kind of, we're kind of past the style wars. There's a little, there's some things going on around AI and stuff like that, but I think we really have to begin to take responsibility with, for the, people that we work for yeah. is it brian collins's fault for instance that robin hood feels like a predatory sort of app to me no maybe not yeah. but at the same time i think we as designers need to acknowledge a little bit that we play a part in that you know totally and i think it's really easy to kind of go when it's really successful and good mm. we had a big role in that and when it's not we're like well design doesn't mean anything at the end of the day you know i think there's a little totally. bit of that sort of double standard that it would be nice to see all of us. And I say us, I say me, mm. you know, take a little bit more responsibility for. Yeah. There's, there's a good point. And there's a few other examples in there that are, um, you know, companies that are like, we're changing the world of this design and the company ends up doing something terrible. Like, you know, F FTX is a fantastic example of, of, <laughs> yeah. of, of that. Exactly. Have, it came to mind for me too. Yeah. Where you have design firms and I, I'm not going to mention them by name, but that worked on their product that basically when they came out, they're like, we're making the world a better place and making money shareable and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you look what happened. You're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Not really helping, but <laughs> right. you know, um, 
ahead. So, you know, so I think in our practice, part of my reason for our make trying to make this transition too is that can we begin to be doing things for organizations or communicating mess at least messages that maybe go beyond the usual we're trying to sell something um, in this day and age. And I think mm-hmm. that's a transition that I don't know how to make because we have to make money and we have to, to stay afloat. And, yeah. you know, the last two years has been a real sort of sobering kind of like, whoa, like this could all go under like fast if you're not careful. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't mean our business. I just mean like the whole system in <laughs> yeah, general. No, I'm, I'm aware. Um, um, you know, I just, I want to believe that maybe this experience might shift that discussion and action a little bit yeah. more. So it's interesting. You, you, you talk about that. Cause, cause I, my main clientele, cause my studio is tiny, right? It's, it's basically me is the only real full-time person. And I rely on a large network of friends, the people that have become friends that are designers and copy editors and people. And, and like, I only give them the work that I can pay them the best I can pay them for. So I'm always like, this will right. be a full-time, eventually I'd love it to be a full-time job for these people as well. And I, but my problem is the same as yours. Like, I can't pay them what I think they deserve to be paid, at least then I I don't want to pull them away from another job. But the problem is, is that in the current economy, those jobs don't are, are not really don't exist. They're disappearing. Um, but most of my work centers around uh, early stage startups and helping and helping them kind of define not only their their brand but also their product market fit so like half of what we do it might be considered like traditional graphic design or experiential design like what collins or uh what i would have done at collins but uh the rest of it is actual like helping design and develop actual products whether it's like software or physical product and in that's interesting because sometimes i'll go down this path with a founder or their product team and i'll realize that these people actually aren't as um, holly jolly Christmas as they claim to be. And the brand they want me to project for them for is that they're for the earth. And after seeing their product, I realized they're not. And that's when we have a, a discussion being like, we can keep working on this product. I think it has a place, but you guys need to really change the way that you are describing yourselves. Because if you don't, then I can't keep working on this. Like, and it with a good confidence, right? And that's like the problem we're running into is people are willing to literally say anything to make a few bucks and no one's checking it anymore. So, yeah, and that's and that goes back to this talk about you know these bigger systems at play that are making us act in this way. And I, I actually feel pretty fortunate that, for better or for worse, our reputation has filtered out some of the what I would call maybe the riffraff sort of clients. That I mean, maybe we've been less profitable, but at least we can sort of walk the walk in terms of a lot of the, the values that we espouse and. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard because there's a lot of designers and, you know, I feel for you because I think we sort of struggle with the same thing and that our work kind of filters in so many different kind of deliverables and things that we, we, we have to have this larger group of people that maybe aren't full time, yeah. but we need their help and we want to make sure that we have the budget for that and we don't want to exploit them like you're saying. And, and so you know, this is where my intuitive, more emotional mind doesn't work very well because that requires a degree of rigor around, yeah, you know, building systems, business and organizing and making sure that you're not going over the hours and, you know, spending a lot of time on things that you shouldn't be spending time on. And, and, um, 
you know, this is where the, the running the business part of being a creative is can be very difficult and you need the right people to help you do it. And, um, I mean, luckily we have some people like that here, but, um, but it's hard because I want the stuff to be good. And, Mm -hmm. and at the same time at what cost and, and, and then at what cost and who are we doing this for at the end? Maybe this is, maybe this job is not the important one to expend all your energy and pain over. And maybe it's this other one and you Mm -hmm. use this, the former one to yeah pay for the, the, the latter one. You know? And that's, and that's the thing I learned at Collins too, is those, those operators, those people that can work with and around creatives, but have a business mindset and can really drive forward are so valuable. Um, I don't know. Have you met Seth Morozka, the used to be the president of Collins? Um, so he founded, not. he founded a new company with Matt Luckhurst. Um, I know and, Matt. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm just like, I'm sure you know, Matt. So, so, so Matt's yeah. new company that's been around for the new company, ironically, um, him and Seth right. are co-founders. And Seth is the, he's that business owner operator and he's a mentor and on the board of my company and a mentor of my personal, personal friend, but he's someone I, I, I have a lot of waxing poetic conversations about this because it's amazing how much he sees as just waste in the design industry and just how he views his potentials for avenues to, uh, increase readiness. But, you know, I, I think you kept saying that you, you feel responsibility to help fix the system. And I was just trying to think of like, what could help that? Do, do you think AIGA would have any ability to help begin to kind of sh- shift this mindset at all? Or I, I think they could step up. I mean, I think I love the AIGA. I've been fairly active over the years, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think it, it's a professional organization and you know, if the AIGA, I think they have a moment here where they, you know, they kind of went through this whole sort of, you know, inclusive crisis. And I think why couldn't they extend that to the actual ethics of the work? But I also wonder too, you know, something I'm thinking about a lot too is the scale in which we think about design and something that comes up in that other Rebecca Solnit book, A Paradise Built in Hell is how the short of it is that, you know, any sort of meaningful change is going to come from the ground up at a small scale first, not from the top down. And so for us as designers to put trust in these kind of big organizations like corporations that we work for, or even the AIGA, I think is not foolish, but it's like, I think designers could do, could stand to focus a little bit on the, the, the one-to-one, the quality interactions like yeah. designing things for 300 people, but it irrevocably changes their lives as opposed to just gives them another app or something that they don't mm-hmm. really need. Yeah. I think beginning to think about scale and granted there's a financial component here that makes it difficult, I think, but something that I've been really struck by teaching this TBD class where we're working with these small local nonprofits that really are the glue that hold a lot of what makes the city great together. Mm-hmm. You realize like, yeah, this isn't like the lift app. But if they move the needle even slightly with this design, it's Mm going to make a huge difference. And, and I have been really moved by seeing how much the organizations really value what the students do and how much it helps them. And that, and extending that to our lives, you know, I think about this great book called um, by Jenny O'Dell called how to do nothing, Hmm. which 
I'm not a self-help book guy at all. I mean, I hate them, but this, and this book isn't really <laughs> self-help, but because she's an artist who teaches at Stanford, but she tells the story about how she had a lot of Twitter followers and she was on Twitter a lot. And then they bought a house in Oakland and, or rented a house in Oakland and, and their neighbor came over across the street, introduced themselves and said, Hey, we would love to welcome you to the neighborhood and invite you over to dinner. And her initial response was horror. Like, oh my God, I'm not going to go over to your, and then she let it sink for a week and she realized, oh my God, like if there was an earthquake tomorrow, these are the people that I would have to sort of depend on and, and talk to and make sure that we survive. Not my Twitter follower. Yeah. And that story really stuck with me. Um, And again, credit to my wife when COVID hit and there were all these, you know, delivery people that were sometimes delivering your packages or your food. She goes, you know, we should give those people something every time they come and learn their names. And so she would buy like bars and snacks. And every time somebody would deliver it, we would give it to them. And then I thought I had this box of, of Marvel comics, um, postcards of of vintage, um, covers from Marvel comics that I never had used for anything (laughs) because I kept them. And I thought, you know what? This is a good idea. And I'm going to write them a personal note saying you're a superhero for helping us get through, the, you know, doing this work right now through a pandemic. And so yeah. you know, every time someone would come, I would write the letter. We would give them the, the bar. And maybe it feels a little bit like first world, third world. But hmm. um, but I I, about six months later, I did it to somebody and I said, oh, did you get our did you get our tip too on the line? And the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And by the way all the people that do this, you know, d- the delivery work, we, we talk about you, you know, we talk <laughs> about you and your wife because you do this and you're so nice. And I thought to myself, like, okay, like you're making a difference. Yeah. This is what design needs to do. It needs to yeah. go back to the, the one-to-one glue that mm-hmm. binds us as people. And I don't know how to do that, mm. but, um, but I feel like these little jobs we're working on that are more civic oriented and the way we're sort of approaching yeah. This, the way we tell these stories in these physical spaces, for me, that's always in the back of my head. Yeah. You know, you do need and, uh, evangelists that can help speak to people that aren't used to that world. I think Debbie Millman's a fantastic example of someone who like champions design through society. I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head right now that really is on the forefront of like helping push this idea that design can really help solve a lot of problems. But, um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I've always seen Debbie Millman as, as kind of an evangelist for the branding side of things, but um, but I, I you know, I one thing that I um, I think you also do in your old age is you don't pay attention to the design mm. press and the design discourse as much because you want to get. I think Michael Beirut's this is classic thing where he's always like, ah, you know, I'm past that now, and I want to <laughs> I want to yeah. talk about other other things and yeah. um, even Let's though he's one of the biggest yeah. evan- evangelists that we've had but mm-hmm. um, but yeah I just I just think it's graphic design for better or worse has always kind of chased these sort of these things that I've always struggled with they've always felt a little bit superficial for lack of a better description and mm-hmm. and I think maybe where Debbie's really getting to that is it may be in her podcast um, yeah, that's you know, where I think yeah. she's really grappling with it Design there. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, I just think we need to get back to that a little bit as designers and I haven't quite cracked it in terms of how you make it a viable financial business, but I see what's happening in this class that I'm teaching and trying to figure out like 
how could how could this inform a little bit of what I do in my practice mm-hmm. and maybe inform the way to rethink design, which is maybe a little over ambitious, but I don't know. It just feels like we can't just keep doing business as usual and churning out more shit and saying we care about the environment, care about the world and care about these social structures when we're when we're contributing to things that are in some cases ripping them apart. Yes. You know? Um so I don't know. That's why this, this, this Harvey Milk Memorial thing that we're working on with this SWA landscape thing is such a dream project. Cause for me, it was always like, I want to design a memorial. You know, I saw that Vietnam veterans memorial when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and it just so stuck with me as a teenager and, and to be working on something like this, that just kind of goes past where we normally go past as designers has been such a, first of all, the hardest project we've ever worked on, but also the most richly, sort of rewarding one in the sense of what it'll be around for a while. It's for, you know, it's for a huge cause and, and yeah. purpose that such a profound figure in history for, yeah, for San Francisco, like, you know, I and just beyond. feel so lucky to be part of that, you know, and, and, and that thing really what got us that job was the fact that, you know, when we did this Bloomberg job, this, this sort of what I call site-specific workplace branding for one of their DC offices. I don't know if you saw this project, but I did. Yeah. You know, we, we went into the we went into this we went into the space, and the architect showed me the plan. There was floor-to-ceiling windows, and the egress was going to be a perimeter. And I just said, and I just saw the Vietnam Memorial, and I went, I looked at the plan. I said, Hey, this is a news media office. Wouldn't it be cool if we carved the entire text of the First Amendment around the perimeter of this? space creating this like symbolic moat that protects them because the first amendment is freedom of the press and mm-hmm. the architect and the client looked at each other and went that's a great idea how soon can you have the art to us i mean it's like <laughs> the first meeting yeah and then and then to have that thing become the symbol for them there because trump was elected right after that was installed mm-hmm. um you know to me that was this moment where i realized oh if we if we choose to kind of go bigger than the parochial concerns of like creative briefs and sales we can do things that might be profound unintentionally and that was like one of those projects where i was like whoa yeah wow the aha moments and yeah and this landscape architecture firm saw this they said we need to talk to you we have this <laughs> project we're going to pitch for you know it's just sort of I want, this is where architecture was really great coming back full circle was like, I want designers to think bigger, think bigger than, than these sort of parochial concerns that we often give them in design. Mm -hmm. And, and to me that came from the architecture. Yeah. Yeah. That came from the architecture education. It's like going bigger than just, you know, Oh, I want to make some cool type. Oh, I want to fulfill the client's brief. You know, oh, I want this thing to be downloaded a million times or whatever. You know, I think if we can get past that stuff, it would be interesting to see where we might go. And I think people have gone there. I'm not the only person that's gone there. Obviously, there are plenty of designers that have done this. But um, but I always, you know, one of the when I was in school, I was lucky enough to see Tibor Kalman lecture. And the one thing that, he, that I remember him saying, and I, this is probably paraphrased, that he, he was showing Colors Magazine. He said, look, design is just a language. It's what you do with it that matters. Yeah. And That's at the beautiful. time I was in school, it was this whole early 90s kind of like, you know, postscript, postmodernism, sort of David Carson, you know, emigre mm-hmm. kind of craziness. And it was great. And I loved it. But <laughs> in that moment, I was like, oh, yeah, 
like all this crazy type stuff that I'm doing in my type class kind of feels a little stupid when I hear <laughs> you talk. Yeah. And, um, and, and that has stuck with me ever since. And so I, I, and he had his issues and his, you know, contradictions like every designer, but, um, totally. but I, that always stays with me. It's like, really, it's like, you can make it artistic. You can make it real well crafted. It can be beautiful, but that purpose, you know, still matter and maybe we just need to get back to that a little bit more and really kind of own it you know yeah. really sort of i love that idea so i'm gonna I amend uh, yeah i don't i if i if i knew how i would be like this is the way but i think also the the way is like something that one person can sounds like it's a collective thing almost right that's a not a hegemon but uh it's uh, collective I'm going to amend a question I normally ask just for this kind of conversation, which is, um, is there something you believe in that most don't, but I'm going to kind of temper that with like in the world of design. Um, cause I think designers in general can be kind of contrarians in a good way, but I'm curious, like even within there, I feel like you still uh, remain a contrarian, even within a pretty contrary. That's, that's a compliment. I hope you know that. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I appreciate that. Um, yeah what I believe that most designers don't. Um, well, that's a, you're throwing some good questions. And it was funny because I listened to a few of your podcasts. And I was thinking like, Oh, I should remember that question, but you've asked a few that are completely new. Um, but I didn't hear <laughs> on the other shows. Uh, well, here's one thing that I think um, it may be a little bit granular, but um I think brand guidelines suck. <laughs> and let me, let me explain that a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Please. One of these things that we've unearthed doing these, these workplace branding projects is that um, we were hired in a lot of these projects by the architecture side. And so what happened was these architects were building these beautiful bespoke spaces, office spaces. And then they were, and then, we had to kind of add this brand layer. And what I really mm -hmm. realized very quickly is that, you know, brand is sort of this like one size fits all kind of application more often than not. And it's because, you know, Collins comes in and, you know, does some deliverables and delivers mm -hmm. these guidelines, but can't, can't anticipate every use No, and sort of, okay. Brand guidelines suck is a little bit strong, but nonetheless, <laughs> and I think what it taught me was that, designers need to approach the way they do things like architects do in site specific sort of ways. They need mm -hmm. to be looking at where this thing actually will be applied and being sensitive to that. And the example that I give is that somebody had a, somebody put something up on Instagram a long time ago where they showed this McDonald's and Sedona and Sedona as a city had yeah. very strict kind of city guidelines. So McDonald's had to change turquoise. the arches to this. Yeah. yeah. The Brown and turquoise thing. Right. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And the, and like clockwork, these branding people that I know are just like, this is off brand. I can't believe they were able to do this. This is off brand. I can't believe they were able to do this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is awesome. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's being sensitive to the people that are actually using this on yeah. the ground where they it's live. It's following the brand guidelines of Sedona, not the brand guidelines of McDonald's, yeah. <laughs> which is the domain yeah. of McDonald's. Yeah. And I think for me, I, you know, to me, it's like, the coherence of what McDonald's do is not being, is not being lost here. No. Um, it doesn't have to be consistent. It just needs to be coherent. So we, we, and, and make room for both. 
And luckily yeah. McDonald's is a brand where no one's going to look at a turquoise arch and be like, what the fuck is that? You know, people are like, oh, yeah. it's McDonald's. It's just, I mean, I've never seen it before, you know? Yeah, there are instances where like you're introducing something, consistency is, is important. But I think we need to get, we, we need to stop romanticizing. I mean, I love those guys that do those standard manuals that they're reissuing, Jesse mm-hmm. and um, Hamish. And, yeah. you know, I have those things. But, you know, I think our fascination with those things and our glorification of them are like, oh, my God, remember that time when people followed the rules when you gave them this binder <laughs> and they followed all the rules? And I think we need to get, we need to loosen up in that yeah, respect. It's it's interesting you know? because um, someone, the first episode of this podcast, um, and someone's become a good friend of mine, uh, Richard Daney, who did the NASA graphics standard manual. Like, oh, yeah, the, I know, Richard. The, the, yeah. the, the, the best of all time. He's he's a, He's an SF area guy um yeah he's awesome yeah quick quickly quickly um so uh i'll plug him in a second and his new book quickly um because i i i love him and he's 88 years old and he is like amazing uh, he, he needs to be protected at all costs <laughs> you know like during COVID, i was like richard do not leave the house like stay inside <laughs> like we need you you're very important um but i asked him a question about that and i said that you know like his style guide is one that is as truly like lived far beyond its utility right um and you you've looked at it i looked at it i'll link it for people below the pdfs they can anyone can look at it but it's it's beautiful and it's alarmingly concise but he also did a lot of work in there where it was things that nasa never asked for and he knew that they would never actually act on but he was saying that like this system can live beyond these exacting guidelines and we'd like you to do it as well and it's something that like he did this in the 70s and most people miss this point on most layer layer that 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 needs to be in every single brand style guideline that exists in my mind right it's like here are some yeah. ideas this is a, this is a coat of paint that you may be able to apply but the type of paint will change over time right i mean it goes back to this there's this great definition of beauty that this 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 friend oh, this colleague of mine hamish um oh my god what's his last name i'm forgetting now but he he defined beauty as the essential realization of an internal truth. And what I love about oh, that love definition that. is that it speaks to truth, but it also speaks to this idea that it's not just visual, that we need to be thinking about the way we do things um, multisensorily, but also how we live in the world, how things function in the world. And I think that we've been conditioned as designers to see our work in these kind of annuals on white backgrounds and yeah, these branding programs, you see how they're applied now, you know, certainly we've expanded beyond a little bit that, but I think it lives in this idealized world. And I'm really intrigued by the intersections and the cracks in these systems, you know, and then this idea that, that if we extend it past the sort of visual craft, that these things can be really dynamic and be really rich. If we think about them experientially and how they're actually used and, work Mm -hmm. on the ground and you know again sometimes that's outside of the purview of what these firms like collins and wolf Owens are asked to be done but yeah it's sort of like when you pull strategy away from from the actual execution right it's sort of like you can't really know until you test these things and and do it and and Mm -hmm. i'm often telling students like look when you give these things to your clients if you have to deliver guidelines explain to them that these are fluid working mm-hmm. documents they're living yeah. documents and you should be testing them as much as you can before mm-hmm. we deliver this stuff and maybe the logo is not perfectly rendered 
in that super eh, sort of way, but maybe at least we've made this thing more usable for them. And, totally. and, um, and I think this is a product of, you know, our work, the work that we're working on and seeing that like, if we had done the, the Bloomberg brand guidelines in those spaces, those architects, it would have ruined the space and those architects would have hated us. Yeah. And, and I remember the meeting I had with the architect. He looked at me, he was a French Canadian guy. He sat down with me the first time and he goes, look, he goes, I just want you to understand that I hate these parts of the process. I do this beautiful architecture and you put these little stickers all over it. That's what he said to me. And I was like, I was like, you know, dude, I'm going to try to prove you wrong on this. And to our credit, <laughs> did you prove him wrong? Like, yeah, he was like, they were all like, we stand corrected. You really figured this out. And, but and, most of the time um, they, they fuck it up. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I think that working and back going, coming back full circle from my architecture background back into the spatial world, I think has made me more sensitive to where our work lives and how it's being used. Yeah. And I think because very often are not designers are not seeing their work go into these more permanent arenas or they're just mm -hmm. not seeing it being executed at all. Yeah. That sensitivity is not learned. And so, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, maybe that's my sort of thing that I don't, this is the reason I kind of bristle a little bit, you know, with a I little understand. bit around the branding stuff. I'm um, with you there. I mean, I, I refuse to hire any designer that, uh, spends most of their time on graphics if they haven't made anything physical ever. Um, cause I think that that's a very important tool and, and learning experience where if like I've been many designers who have only ever built things for online, whether it's sites or graphic design, that's purely digital, like never printed anything, never built anything with their hands, you know, and that to me is it's, it's lacking a fundamental understanding of design that I think you can only learn from just making something physical and being like, this is going to exist in a physical form for a very long time. And you cannot change it just by online. Can't do it. So get this SB good. That's great. Good for you, man. Thank you for doing that. Always. <laughs> like, I'll try my best. Right. That's, that's what I always want. But like, I mean, it's ironic because most people I work with actually tend to be engineers or architects or some kind of spatial experience designer who happened to twilight as a graphic designer. Um, and that's, and that's those people I like working with because they get it, you know? Um, and then the people that like, and I've, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. It's like, I've had a lot of success and luck working with aerospace companies because my background's in aerospace engineering. So I understand what they're talking about. They're like, we want this to work for this. And most people will be like, yeah, but you can just paint it any, like, what do you mean? My sticker can't go in the outside of the spacecraft. It's like, no, people, you don't get it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's when you drop your engineering education, but you know, those it's, jobs. It, it, it's useful, but it's less useful than, uh, than you'd think. Um, so, <laughs> well, it gives you honestly, some credibility. It's, it's a little bit, right? little, some, maybe sometimes, um, but kind of going off what, what you were talking about with, um, this whole line of design and your passion and architecture, do you have any interest in the future of designing your own home or like a place to, to live? Like, is that something that's been on your mind? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that question up because I think one of the reasons I pivoted away from architecture was that I didn't really want to do that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I really don't have any desire to go through the pain of building my own house. Now, again, as I've gotten older and I've seen my friends do it, it's like, hmm, yeah, yeah, this might be interesting if I didn't have anything else to do. Um, <laughs> with that like strong Cooking is that way with me too. It's yeah. like I want to get better at cooking, but I don't feel like I have the time. 
Um, I would have, I would say only in the last few years as I, I'm seeing maybe in the future, I may have some more free time. It might be something that I would be curious to do. Yeah. If not do it myself, um, at least be involved in it on a much more acute level. Um, yeah. I have, we have never been able to really afford to buy real estate in this area. Um, yeah. so it's been kind of a non-starter, but, um, but, uh, for all intents and purposes, you, know, you again, live in like a golden basketball court. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. Sorry, but. I, you know, the, the joke that I'm making to myself is that I think I'm finally mature enough to sort of take on some of these things that um, I was told that I needed to be able to do in architecture school and did not have the confidence to <laughs> do. Um, and I think I'm, I'm getting around to maybe in a place where I can maybe hold my own now. But. Um, but I don't know. It's I would have said no to you maybe three years ago. Now that we're all working at home more, I think it's part yeah. of it too. But I'm mm-hmm. like, hmm, maybe it would be interesting to be able to like really figure this out myself. Have and I think maybe that's yeah. what that's what it's been. The shift has been is that you know home was not such a hub as it is now. Yeah. And in the wake of COVID, and uh, and so yeah, I think I think it would be an interesting project to take on now because it's so much more a part of my life. Yeah. And I, I like, I like what you said. I think it'd be interesting to, you know, maybe you're not the principal architect, but you are the one that can give an architecture firm that you trust plans and they'll do the minutia and make sure everything makes sense in the final levels. But you have the grand vision of like the shape yeah. the feel, you know, how it's made the materials, which is like the harder part and really. And like, you have someone else do the, what the interns used to do, you know? Uh, yeah. Because working on these bigger jobs or we're working with the architects and watching them figure out like, you know, the, to make these office spaces work and make these yeah. things functional. And, and I realized like, wow, there, yeah. Yeah. There's like, the, well, that's, yeah, that code <laughs> part too. I realized like there's a whole skill set here that I just never did because I just didn't continue my, you know, apprenticeship and going mm-hmm. through licensing and stuff that, you know, professional would be, yeah. would be really helpful here. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's ironic. So my 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 girlfriend uh, during COVID got a steal on a on an old horse farm in upstate New York, and and she's been renovating the house uh, there. Oh, cool! And, and it's been more like I've come up with plans, and my dad, the architect, has been like the one to do them. And it's I call it the dream crushing session when I'm always like, I want this. He's like, Rob, but that's against code, and that looks like that. And like architects would never do this. And I'm just like, I just like the way this looks right. Like I, I just want this to happen. Can you just make this happen yeah. please? Um, and my dreams get crushed and like, okay, fine. We can put the beam there. Fine. The window can be three inches closer to the inset seam of the left Westford facing wall. I don't know. Like, I don't care. Like it's, and, and that's the reason I didn't go to engineering. Like I didn't want to follow these dumb codes and dumb rules and dumb governmental red tape about like, no, you can't put a valve there. No, that's too explosive. No, that might kill someone. Like I don't, Sorry. It's good to know your limits too. I think. <laughs> yeah. I remember I saw this post of like I think this I think they're called Thonic or something. There's a firm in Amsterdam and they designed their own like office building. And I remember I saw it. I was like, yeah, that's kind of what a building designed by a graphic designer would <laughs> look like. You know? And it, and it wasn't necessarily a compliment. You know, I just no, think that yeah. sometimes we need to just sort of yeah you know, let the experts what they do it's like have you ever seen a house designed by like a a a famous chef or cook and they get to be the one spearheading the design and they're like oh we're artists we're chefs and you walk into the house and you realize that like the only functional room in the house is the kitchen which is great for the kitchen yeah (laughs) right but like for anyone else wants to use a bathroom or you know 
any anything else. Um, but it's ironic. It's like I think what's the saying? It's like if you let a tattoo artist design a tattoo, probably it'll probably look like another tattoo. Um, so hard to know when that happens. Um, what it looks like. Yeah, we'll we'll see. But um, if you do decide to go down that path, I, I would be excited to see what it looks like. Um, and uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. No, on, honestly on though. List. Honestly, though, but like all jokes aside, um, you know, I always my favorite videos or books or like things I read are like behind the scenes of people who specialize in one thing walking through something important, like a very famous chef planning the food at maybe their their only child's wedding or like less like you an architect going through the process of designing their own house because there's such a different thought process that is tangential or even parallel to what they normally use for a client. But it's just so different because they're like this is so much more important because it's, it's my thing. And I'm always like, I've read a few accounts like that and it's always fascinating, you know? Well, it's like presenting your work in design. I think I always tell my students, like the reason presentation is important is because that's what illustrates the value of what you've done. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we see, when we hear, especially these things that are not so like design, the great thing about graphic design is very immediate and it's ideas to communicate. Right. But these things that are a bit more abstract in their expression, whether it's cooking or architecture, you know, it's to hear the backstory and the rationale, you know, is, 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 is powerful. Mm -hmm. Right. It's sort of, there's an understanding there that, um, that, uh, that, you know, just adds richness to maybe something that was already pretty rich in your mind already. And, Sometimes, you know, sometimes hearing those things can often do the opposite thing. You know, sometimes you don't yeah. want to hear the story because it's so magical. But <laughs> I think for things like that, it's, it's it can it's never be retold properly. Yeah. I mean, going back to the, the idea of draconian design programs where like your work was posted in the wall and you might get a you might get a, uh, a letter over break that you're not coming back. I mean, I think the sad thing is there are definitely some people there that would have made great architects that just like the 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 story wasn't there. And if they had just had been able to present it themselves or just be there to explain it, like it would have been like, wow, this is brilliant. But that's the sad yeah. thing. A lot, of, a lot of people just don't get the time of day because people don't listen. Yeah, and so now it's they let less people in, but they keep all of them. I and I don't know what better. I don't know <laughs> what the better worse. option is there because I also think too. I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but you know, I to go into college at eighteen and like and a have the wherewithal and the and the sort of experience to think you could design a building, however hypothetical. Yeah, and then understand that that's what you want to do with mm-hmm. your life. I mean, I think that. Yeah, and take out hundred thousand know, dollars in loans. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I just think that there's just, again, it's just a different, it's a different thing. And I, and I really try to have a lot more empathy for students who are, who are trying to figure stuff out, you know, on the fly while they're trying to get an education that might help them get a leg up once they get out. Um, Agreed. Yeah. I, my stepmother um, teaches high school at a pretty wealthy neighborhood, pretty near the town in, in New York, outside New York city. And so they have the ability to, she's, she's like basically head of our program there and has the ability to kind of run these pretty wild classes, but she does an architecture class. She's, she, my dad went to architecture school together. Uh, um, and, uh, it's really interesting talking to her about it because it seems like she helps kids who like maybe are like interested in that actually understand what goes into it. That's part one. And also people that might've, some people take it as like an easy elective and they're surprised how quickly, like this is the most work they're doing their senior years in their architecture class. And, but it's right. amazing. She had, you know, these stars of the football team that were going to go to a full ride. They were going to a good school 
and uh, they went to architecture class, like, oh, this would be an easy A, and ended up having to work for it. And afterwards, they're like, this is actually something I really want to do. Like, design's cool. I never even tried it. And vice versa, people go like, I always want to be an architect, come in there being like, I'm going to go do something else because this is not what I want to spend my time doing. I think that's very important. You know, we all had that moment in life, I'm sure some of us did, where like, there's that one thing we always want to do, and we did it, and like a sample, and we were like, oh, wow, could you imagine if I spent my entire life doing this? Like, oh, that would suck. Uh. <laughs> and there's something to be said for you know, a class or a major field that demands that of you. You know, I, I still admire the fact that architecture says like, you know, you got to be all in here. You mm-hmm. know, this is no, like you can't coast through this. And it's like, medicine. You know, I think it's some pe- thing. Yeah. I would probably say med school or war. Well, yeah. <laughs> Although med school now is becoming templatized and becoming, you know, it's, it's all about regurgitation, less about actually learning and understanding human anatomy and the human body, sadly. Um, having talked to friends well, that, school that, recently. That's a yeah, a whole other tangent that I'm sure you and I could uh, go down on. Um, but knowing it is it is Friday evening, um, I'm gonna get you out of here. Oh, I didn't on... even know what time it was. Yeah, I was like having a good time. This <laughs> good. is this is the way I roll. Well, I'm gonna get you out of here in yeah, a few quick uh, rapid yeah. fire questions. Um, you can answer these cool. in as few or as many tangents as you'd like. Um, I am in no rush, as I said. Um, you're going to love some of these questions. You're going to hate some of these questions and the ones you hate, okay. I really look forward to your answers. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. So, um, if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family or anything you particularly had an immediate impact on, um, in terms of like someone you knew, uh, what problem would you try and solve? <laughs> wow. I just feel like all the problems I want to solve, that would need a trillion. Um, a really nice bullet. Uh, well, you know, I, I think a lot about how lucky I was as a kid going to public schools and being, having an art class and being exposed to that. And it wasn't just like the people that you, the other kids that you met in that class or bonded with, but it was, I don't know. I just feel like learning creativity makes you a better person. And this colleague of mine, his name is Brian Singer, not the disgraced X-Men director, um, who goes by this <laughs> by this moniker, some guy, did this really great project called the 1000 Journals Project, where he left journals all over the world, you know, and all the, on the front of it just said, you know, you're an artist, fill this up. And the motivation wow. for the project was that he said that, like, if you go to kindergarten class and you ask, how many of you are artists? they all raise their hands. Yeah. You get to fifth grade, about half raise their hands. You get to high school, one or two. Mm. And I kept thinking to myself, like, that's, that sucked. Yeah. And, and I realized that one of my first freelance, um, nonprofit clients when I was, um, doing work on the side was this organization that was literally the whole purpose was that we have to supplement the arts in the schools because they don't have any. And our whole organization mm-hmm. is about creating programs that teachers can bring in once a, you know, once a quarter to do, to show something. And I thought, you know, if, if, if a billion dollars guaranteed that, you know, every kid in the public schools between the ages of like second grade and ninth grade mm-hmm. got like a concentrated semester in the arts, you know, and it was valued as such. It was paid for, and the teacher was there, and it wasn't this extra credit thing. 
I don't know if a billion dollars would pay for a lot of that, but um, I think it would yeah. be able to do it in at least a state, right? Maybe a mm-hmm. few states. I don't know. Well, I'm trying to look um, right now. I was actually curious. So the U.S. per student pre-K through 12th grades, that's the only number I can get, um, 48 million individuals in the United States are in that pre-K to 12th grade kind of span. So assuming it was a billion dollars, yeah, you'd only get twenty dollars per head. So you can't. I don't know how much you could do. Per head. I don't know how much you could do can't with a billion, but, but but a state though, like think think even California, where you probably have yeah. four million, maybe, um, that then makes that number two hundred two hundred fifty dollars per person, um, which then you could do a lot more. Yeah, with. I, yeah, I just think that you know it makes us more empathetic. It makes us. It it does it. it it sort of brings out, I think, the best in people, whether you're mm. making it or whether you're absorbing it. And yeah. I just, and I think about that so much of the way I live my life was, and, and think about the world were, were those foundational moments and these kind of like more creative, you could even say humanities and, and arts classes, you know, that I think mm-hmm. get short shrifted right now because it's not STEM and it's not yeah. going to get people a leg up when they have to go out and struggle in the world. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it, it, we're not trying to make more efficient people. That's, that's for the robots. You know, we're trying to yeah. make feeling people and, yeah, um, yeah, I am. am I feeling, <laughs> yeah. And I'm feeling like the, the arts is, is kind of important in that respect. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just like, I'm like, can we make cities more walkable? I, you know what I mean? I just, I just think that these a billion dollars, <laughs> really basic enough, things man. that I want, you know, I'm not asking for much dollars isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, so, so that's my people always that's ask the best I can do. Yeah, I mean, I look back at my education and and it's pretty math and science heavy, but the most profound classes I've ever taken in my entire life were art or design. Like still, you know, and it's 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 pretty I think that's pretty damning to me, you know. Um even though like the entire program or like life is based around science and math, right? Um Let's feed STEM, the soul, not just yeah. the brain. You know? For sure. To be fair, though, like I'm one of those, you know, people that loves math so much. I view it as an art form at some level, um, but also because like that's. Dude, I loved math, too. I yeah. was in calculus in high school, baby. I there's not I have, I have I'm one of those designers that does know how to do math. I love that. Thank you very much. I love okay. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I pissed off someone at, at Collins on my first week when they were asking about my views in design. And I said, well, I think a good half of design is just understanding good basic arithmetic and math. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, I mean most most like ratios and sizing and understanding placement is all kind of formulaic and the rest of it the other half is like the finesse and the panache right but like getting to the first part is just math and they were really mad at me wow um <laughs> I, I mean that's my view right but i do agree that you know i i, I understand i'm not saying design's math but i think you know what i'm saying um there's a lot there's a lot of i totally do there. um my favorite well, yeah, my, systems. Systems. systems systems and, and honestly that's like what architecture taught me too my favorite person to talk to during lunchtime at Collins was, uh, I say lunchtime, if we had an organized lunchtime. No, no, like we just sit together and eat lunch. Um, but uh, he was a, like a color theory guy. And that was like his main, it wasn't his job, but like that was his, that was his favorite thing. And him and I would talk about it. And I would always love, like, he would explain this thing and I would look at everything and I would try to find some kind of mathematical relationship between the colors. And almost always it existed. And I was like, this is, this is fascinating. And it's interesting that, you know, like, this idea of like human uh, really trained eye and color systems could see this arrangement of colors and find beauty in it. And then there's also a way to mathematically describe that, that then could be used for different colors. It's like, well, that's wild to me. 
I love that kind of stuff. Um, this is a fun tangent. Uh, what is a story that your family or parents like to tell about you? Oh my God. My family likes to tell about me. Um, oof. I don't want to waste any more dead time trying to think about that. Um, <laughs> it's good. Uh, I'll start saying, I, uh, well, well, um, this is going to be, I'm going to try to spin this into some sort of why I am the way I am now. So one of the stories that I always remember my aunts and uncles kind of telling me, you know, well into my twenties and thirties was when I was a baby or one or two years old, my grand, I was fascinated with the automatic door opener. And so my grandfather <laughs> would hold me and I would go door up and he'd press the button and I'd go, Woom, and I go door down. And it was like two of the first, I think words that I sort of learned how to say. And, yeah. and, um, and, uh, and while I, I see myself as an, as an artistic person, I think that I was also very fascinated with the, you know, the engineering of that stuff too. Yeah. And so, um, but I think also the fact that I was at a young age, very kind of intrigued about how things went together and how they worked, um, is probably part of the reason I'm attracted to design. Cause I think design is this marriage of both what you're saying, engineering and art. And, art. and yeah. so, um. Um, but yeah, my aunts, my aunts and my grandparents used to just pull out that story all the time. <laughs> and I was just I, like, it's a cute okay. story. And, and, and we all have yeah. ones like, like that, where it's just like seemingly obtuse and or kind of like a left field. But when you actually think about it, you're like, yeah, oh, that actually makes sense for who I am now. Right. Yeah. Um, going off bit. that. What is, what is that? What is that like? I know I'm full of dumb, pithy quotes that are mostly cliche, but it's kind of like how I string together thoughts, honestly. Um, and there's a book I read by Donald Judd. And he said, uh, what is it? Uh, Design has to work. Art does not. And I was reminded by that. Or I was like, sometimes I, I used to walk into like contemporary art museum or modern art museum and be like, half these things are amazing to me. The other half of things I'm still trying to figure out what happened, but uh, there is no rules, right? But if this was a doorway and it didn't work, you'd be like, okay, it's not a doorway. It's art. <laughs> I've used that quote in the past too. And I yet though, I've never been able to find it. And I'm worried that it might be more apocryphal than it is real. So if you mm. can find me where yeah. he actually said that, I will be very grateful. I will look that up for you and I'll put it in the show mm. notes below when I do. And I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, Ronnie, I don't, nearly certain it was Donald Judd. And I'm nearly certain it was a book on the it Collins is Donald library. Judd. It is yeah. Donald Judd. Or at least that's where I heard said it too, but yeah. I'm tr- I just never been able to find the exact yeah. excerpt. Yeah. So. What, one sentence later. Anybody out there listening to this, <laughs> if you have it, please email, email Eric or I uh, or uh, and, whatever. Uh, and so we can pigeon. so we can legitimize. Can we so we can legitimize this? Uh, this yeah, and Eric, Eric might even hire you if you send it to him on an old school Marvel <laughs> postcard. Um, just saying, if you, you mail me, if you mail me anything, I will you that get my attention. Good. Um, uh, this, so I always like coming up with new questions, uh, during this like quick rapid fire round. Um, and, and something came to mind earlier, it wasn't the right time to ask it, but you know, your, your view on design and different things, has there been like a, an iPhone or a, or a smartphone app recently that you've used that's really just like really excited you or like blown your mind? It could be something stupid, simple that you were just like, this was just done right. You know, <laughs> where's my phone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, and I'm happy to fill the dead air know, for I, a second, but, um, um, 
I, you know, there's, there are, I wouldn't say there's anything even lately that has really sort of blown my mind, but there was this one that I used for a while. This is obviously pre COVID that was, um, that logged, um, the decibel level in spaces mm. like it would log and, and it was part of a research project, pro, pro, like, uh, like personal research project yeah. about like how loud like restaurants are and how mm-hmm. I, I must be going deaf being in here too much. And it was fascinating in the sense that um, out of the 29 to 30 that I measured the sound in, most of them were above the level that like anybody who is working here on a regular basis is probably going to go deaf once they, if they stay here for too long. Yeah, and, um, and so I was, I was kind of fascinated by the data that, that, that thing would give me. Um, I think the other app that I use the most too is, is, is out of my music obsession, which is just, you know, the, the Shazam app, I just mm-hmm. think is a wonderful way to Fantastic. discover new music and so i would i'd say that they're both audio based um mm-hmm. and uh um that, that those are kind of mundane but you know kind of i love it interesting to me um there's <laughs> there's uh speaking of audio based there's an app that i use a lot called environments um and it's ever heard of the recording artist hold on I'd look at this um what's his name uh irv tybel or tibble tybel T E I B E L. So he was this, he was this guy that used to just sit in a, in like a forest or a rainstorm with like a giant boom mic and just record like the highest fidelity sound of nature sounds as possible. And he'd put them on these LPs that were sold in like the seventies and eighties. Oh wow. And so what they did is this $4 app. It's like, I don't really don't like paying for apps, but I, I'd pay for this. And they, I'll show it to you. I'll show you on the screen, but like, it's this amazing experience where, they literally just have uh, a few different recordings of things he's done, like uh, rain falling in a pine forest, um, ultimate heartbeat, wind in the trees. And they're like these OG vinyl recordings of, so you, it's not like perfect sound. You can definitely tell it was recorded on vinyl at one point, but like, it's just, it's very common. So like whenever I'm like on a plane and trying to work and I just don't want to listen to music, I'll just play some of those. And I, I could not recommend that. App more. <laughs> it's worth four bucks. That's what I had to say. Wow. Um, I mean, I, you know, one of my favorite artists is John Cage. And, um, you know, I just, I think about like, if that guy was alive when the iPhone was here, he'd be having a field day with that thing. Yeah. He'd probably be creating a new app every week. Well, I was, I mean, it's fun to think about like what people that were pre, pre this kind of smartphone app ecosystem would just have made some just incredible shit. You know, like I love it to see what like Edison would come up with, you know, um, or someone like Tesla, you know, um, or even old artists, you know, I just think it's, 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 it's fascinating. Um, well, the last, last plug I'll make is, uh, uh, apps wise, apps wise. No, it's not a really a plug. I have no associated with them. I, I fly too much. I travel too much. Um, and there's this app called flighty, which like it, it's the, it's the dumbest, simplest thing ever, but it saves me so much time. And what it does is you, you like just say you're on, you, you book a flight, you forward the email to uh, them and they import it into your app. And it has this like active map of where you're traveling to. But the best thing about it is it records things like confirmation numbers 
and phone numbers to call and it's tapped into like the FAA database. So like often it'll tell me my flight's delayed. Then 10 minutes later, Delta will be like, your flight's delayed, but it's like useful information because they get it first somehow. And it's so good that like I have friends who are commercial airline pilots who use it because they find that information from this app before their own employers tell them like your aircraft's changed or your flight's changed or like this is canceled, you know, it's, it's, it's just great. But the best thing about it is like, if anyone's an aviation nerd, like the app opens like this, I'm showing you on the screen. Um, and it shows you like where your upcoming trips are on like a map, which is like a very satisfying way to view it. But the best thing about it is that it automatically syncs it to your calendar, which people out there might be like, ah, trip, it does that things do that. But the thing is it's smart. If the flight's delayed, the flight changes, it adjusts that too. It's like this live adjustment. And I couldn't tell you how much time I spend just typing in dumb things on calendars. So like having that automated to me is pretty amazing. Um, you know, whatever you I, save that your time. That sounds great. When I start traveling again, that sounds like a good, or traveling more, that would yeah. be a, sounds pretty Honestly, ideal. just, just, just to be able, it's like, it's always thinking ahead of time. It's like, it, it always starts popping up when the flight's coming near and it's like, reminds you to check in. Then it's like, this is where your gate is. By the way, make sure you get dropped off at this door if you're coming in by car. You know, like when you get off the flight, it like knows like your baggage is waiting for you at baggage claim D3. Like it's just a notification. Just you don't have to like think about it. You're just like, cool. This is where I'm going. Um, I like that kind of stuff. That's that's where like automation and AI, I want to just like throw it at that. Do that. Uh, <laughs> I know yeah. to go to to make my life more efficient. Yeah, just bo- wow. just bother me, and and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll do it. I did it with Heather too, like and other people. I, I had podcasts, and like because I'm always like I'm always looking to automate the things that I don't want to think, about so I can spend more time on thinking about fun things. You know, um, I don't want to think about the rest. There's of some truth to that. But sometimes it's fun to like do the long, slow way of doing something classic. Um, regardless, uh, if. I'll get you out of here on this question uh, as a last question. So if you could send a single push notification uh, to everyone's phone in a given area, uh, where would that area be? And what would it say? <laughs> Can't we just talk about like movies I've seen? Um, sure. Anyway, uh, let's think. Um, Die Hard I'm is a question to great, everyone in the world. It's a great question. <laughs> One push notification to everybody's phone in a certain area. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I have a specific area in mind. Um, That's fine. Um, although, you know, I do live in probably smartphone central. Mm-hmm. Um, at You're least the way we think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thanks for that. Oh my God. This is where I'm like embarrassed because I'm coming up with something on that. I don't know. It'd just probably be something like, Slow down, be patient, help someone. I love it. And turn this off for a little bit. Yeah. But some but honestly, that first thing that comes to mind that you were kind of hesitating from, I think, is that's the yeah. one thing that matters, right? It's like Yeah. Um my my one of my my best friend, I'm in his house right now recording this down in San Diego. Uh I'm usually up 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 north in Seattle. Um, but he calls his phone, his name is Zach. He calls his phone Zach's Nightmare Rectangle, and I think it's the most appropriate name for a phone I've ever <laughs> So we were in, in our friend group. We call these all nightmare rectangles. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> that answer was maybe a little cliched, but I just think that um, no, it's fine. you know, if if we think about if we bring it back to design and and um, 
you know, I remember, I think when we wrote our first um, sort of manifesto for volume, it was like, you know, could, I, I forget what the exact wording was, but it was, um, you know, can design create sort of um, provoke questions, provoke conversation, um, provide spaces for contemplation and a chance to take a deep breath. And I think that when we're hurried, when we're, when we're hurrying along, when we're nervous, um, when we're on our phones, we tend to turn in on ourselves and think mostly about ourselves. And I, and I, and, um, and I think one of the reasons that I don't engage on social media a lot, and this is not, I always say it's not, it them it's me is that um <laughs> it sort of it, it brings out things in me that i don't like and um and i think part of it is just this this that that we, we're not helping people we're helping ourselves we're not mm. we're not working at a, at a slow and concentrated pace we're we're multitasking right yeah. and so we're trying to do eight thousand and i guess once and I'm as self-involved as the, as the, as the, 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 as the most, you know, self-involved person out there. But yeah. I have found that like these moments where I, where I turn it off and when I slow down and when I, and I redirect it towards other people. And again, this is where I look to my wife as the example, the, the ideal example of this. I always feel so much better. And one thing I'll leave you with, you know, I was part of, I'm part of this weird, I call it the, the sort of um, creative Jewish Freemasons group called Freema- uh, Reboot. And, you know, there was this idea that was launched in, 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 the, in the session that I was in um, that became this thing called the Sabbath Manifesto. Mm. And, it, and it, it evolved into the National Day of Unplugging. But it was this idea that, like, you know, the Sabbath in Judaism is, and I'm not, I'm not a, a religiously practicing Jew, but mm-hmm. the Sabbath in Judaism is is from Friday night to Saturday night. If you're Orthodox, you, you turn off all your, you can't do anything electric. You stop yeah. working. You have to just take the day to like, you know, think, reflect, reflect and think, yeah. Right. And whether you're religious or not, what a great idea. And so the idea was, Hey, maybe we should turn off our phones for a day. And it's really hard to do, but I got to say, um, it's really amazing. And, and, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound like this, like old, you know, what do they call it? Luddite, no, I hundred percent agree um, with you. I, I try to do it often, but it's not, doesn't happen. But, That's the problem. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if we could in our, in our quest to, you know, engineer and mm-hmm. make ourselves better in this age of, you know, self-help and self-care if yeah. you know, that couldn't be a part of it. And could designers be part of that? Could, could help that happen. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So any I, good movies. <laughs> uh actually i watched bullet Tra- i just came back to the states after a month away i watched the movie yeah. bullet train on the flight and i have to say it was vi- it was it was way better than i thought it was fun like- yeah it's like one movies i'll watch once i know the plot now i won't ruin it um but like i could watch it again in four years being like i don't remember the plot of this and i'll be like oh yeah this is a good movie and then i'll remember the plot and it'll ruin it for me again but like sounds it's one like of those a good movies, m- like playing movie like knives out you know like that's a movie where like i know the plot now it was really enjoyable the first time i watched it but I don't really want to watch it again. But Bull Train's one of those. Parasite's another one of those. You know, it's like, it's beautiful. Great. Parasite's actually a work of art, but. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, Parasite's great. I actually saw that twice. And actually, I would argue that you actually. Learn more every time you watch it. The second viewing of that because you know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
enriches it actually i would yeah. say so i watched it it was interesting yeah. i watched it for the third time uh it was my girlfriend's first time watching it and i actually learned more from that time watching it than all the rest combined because i was like i was reflecting from her reactions as well as picking up on things that i'd missed before because i was too focused on like I was watching the, the, the accident in the middle of the screen, so I wasn't watching the future accident in the corner, if that makes sense. Um, and that's there's a beauty to that. But quickly going back to your unplugging thing, um, you know, I try to strive for like at least a day a month where I can do that, and it's very hard, especially if you're someone I, like you or I were it's yeah, working. Yeah, it's hard for me, man. But with – so there's this mode on iPhones called downtime. And I could not recommend it more to anyone else. I'm sure people and like you can decide what apps you want to allow or not. But the best thing about it is you also get to choose what context get to contact you. And so it's my middle earth, like not middle earth, my middle stage version of completely turning off my phone and being and, and, and also still being connected where I basically allow my girlfriend, my mom, my sister, my dad and my grandma to call me like they, they can contact me but they're the only people that'll go through like even the messages app it'll look like it's all timed out there's little little like icons i won't even let you see the communications or see read the conversations and so i basically make my phone so it's like a music player a notes app um and then like some of my reminders that's the only things i allow through and the communications from the most important people and that's like my middle version and every night around like 9 or 10 p.m up until after I've woken up and gone through like my own morning routine, do I unlock it? And it's like this amazing moat I create where like the world could be on fire and I'm not going to know otherwise. And it's beautiful. Um, Cause you'd be amazed. You'd be worried further. what you're going to miss, but you don't miss them. <laughs> I go further. I got one of those boxes where you lock it in there and you oh, set a amazing. timer and you can't get it open. That's amazing. That's a, that's a, that's the other recommendation I'd make. <laughs> yeah. My only, my, my one worry communication wise is like, um, if something happens to someone in my family close to me, I do want to be able to, if I can help or be there, that's something I do think about on a back end level. Um, but no, of course. But yeah. I also think to myself, like how many times has that actually happened? You yeah, know zero. I mean? yeah. It's a good point. I, exactly. I just, yeah. You know? the, the, the box thing, is that the one where you say like eight hours and regardless of what you do in that time. Yeah. It, it just gonna goes, happen. It just locks. And the thing is yeah. like this solid flat, you have to like, get like a chainsaw to get it open or something <laughs> awesome. um i'll find one on amazon and link it below for anyone that's interested um and, uh, <laughs> why not? i forget the one i have but yeah i'm, I'm sure they'll do the same thing right um or maybe we edit this part out i don't know we, you've been going for a long time so uh that's fine i actually don't edit podcasts unless someone specifically asked me to edit something that they don't want to say and i say that as well right. knowing this is going to right out of my audience to us talk for two hours and 38 minutes you'd be surprised so i so my, my episodes basically are people listen to the first 10 15 minutes and decide they don't like someone and drop off or listen to almost the entire thing they they oh, cut out once they okay. hear me say have a good night <laughs> so i think maybe people just left right now which is fine all right but well, with that anything else you'd like to plug or add or share or no i think we talked about a lot and uh i really enjoyed it and uh you know it's not I often that people let people let you sort of spread your sort of wings in terms of talking about whatever and so i'm 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 i i thank you very much for letting us do it it was really fun to hear about you and what you're doing and, and, and the little bit of time that you gave me to talk about what we're doing. And, um, I hope, I hope there's some people that get to the end. I hope it was interesting. 
And to those people out there, if you email me with the word uh, banana shortcake, I will send you a gift up until the next like two months. I'll do it. I mean, I mean, it. so I, I'm, I'm actually going to test it right now. If you send me an email to the email in the profile, it says banana shortcake in the, in the, in the title. And it's until, let's just say J- July 1st, 2023. I, this, I might regret this. I'll send you a present. Cool. Right on. Well, get let's your see. present people. Yes. Um, uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm going to connect you a little bit shortly offline about one particular thing after we're done recording. Okay. Um, but otherwise, thank uh, you. have a good night, fun. everyone. I hope you all have enjoyed this conversation between myself and Eric. You can find Eric online at Eric F. Hyman. That's E-R-I-C-F-H-E-I-M-A-N. And you can find myself, as always, online at Rob Auchincloss. I hope you all have a fantastic and wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye.